Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. It might be the last one, but it sure is another beautiful Saturday here in the Upper Midwest. And I hope you have a chance to get out and about a little bit. It's a great, great day. And it's been a pretty good month for us. Um, Look, we're only a year away from the next presidential election. So uh, campaign has started. Let's, Let's get into that. Because one year out by now, nearly everyone who's paying attention to politics has heard that Donald Trump not only is on the campaign trail quoting Adolf Hitler, he has adopted the Nazi political strategy of promising to rid the country of his political enemies and outsiders who are, in their words, vermin. Vermin. Mr. Trump promised to open concentration camps and to make, you know, because they would make his so-called purification of the nation more efficient. What are we supposed to make of this disgusting, dangerous, and deeply un-American campaign promise. My gosh, the answer should be really simple, right? The press should report on it. Everyone should condemn it. And that should be it. Done. No one pays them another lick of attention. But we're not in that country anymore. So um, let me first ask, uh, what should the Republicans make of this kind of talk? Well, if, if, they, if they don't want to be forever known as the party that fought to end American democracy, and, and, and not just the democracy, those protections uh, that generations of heroes died to preserve, they should take these terrible comments as yet another off-ramp available to them. Look, they failed to take the opportunity to walk away from this stuff after January 6th when they had a chance. Uh, They failed again when uh, Trump was indicted for stealing and misusing national secrets. Oops, they failed a third time when he was indicted for conspiracy to overturn the last election. But now his going forward promises, what he's saying himself about what he will do, are so appalling that GOP senators and governors and House members and state legislators across the country have another chance to denounce this nonsense and and support somebody else as their nominee. And you know what? A few Republicans have done this. They've launched no labels, which pretends to be nonpartisan, but is, of course, an effort to create a new right of center alternative to today's GOP. And I think we need a right of center party in America, and today's GOP isn't it. That right, that these guys at no labels, they've attracted a lot of former Republican money and talent. It would help, of course, if they were honest about their goals. Instead, they play this a pox on both their houses game, and that's not honest. But, you know, you got to expect these new Republicans will inherit some of this dishonest DNA from their defunct parent. But look, most Republicans, most of them radicalized as they are, are sticking with this party through well into its fascist incarnation. And let's be clear with each other what that means. Mr. Trump's promised concentration camps, his vow to politicize the bureaucracy and to carry out his will, is a pledge to use law enforcement 
you know, as a tool to punish political enemies. Look, he's promised a dictatorship. And the GOP has been preparing for this moment. Look at Ohio. Their voters won a huge victory earlier this month by overwhelmingly passing a referendum that enshrines abortion protections in the Ohio Constitution. But in Ohio, um, you know, where, where voters have the right to petition and vote on constitutional amendments, they're the radically gerrymandered partisan power that's their legislature says they will strip the courts from any ability to enforce the state constitution. This renders them above any law, including any constitution. Seriously? In our country? And in Wisconsin, that, again, power that is preserved by its radically gerrymandered legislature, they attempted to overturn the election of a Supreme Court judge just because they fear she might rule against their maps. Again, the rule of law, as well as the will of voters, matter less to these folks than the power they hold. I could go on, but the picture is dire. No rights, but what the folks in power think is best in their best interests for you to have. Tyranny, my friends. Already the apparatchiks of this new regime are being identified. Mr. Trump is sourcing loyalists to fill his government and to provide the stormtroopers he needs to round up millions into his camps. This isn't fantasy. It's fact. Leonard Leo, the man who did more than anyone to corrupt the Supreme Court, is using a nearly $2 billion contribution to build out what he calls the Teneo Network, which is basically the HR department for the coming tyranny. Okay, let's so let's sum up the Republican response to what should be just disqualifying remarks from uh, Mr. Trump. A few will form a new center of right party, but they don't have the guts to say that out loud. Most will follow Mr. Trump in his mad effort to regain power by destroying those of us who think he's unfit. Hmm. That leaves the rest of us. How should we react? Well, the very good news here is that we've already started. We're on the march. The right-wing embrace of totalitarian autocracy has created in opposition the largest political coalition our democracy has ever seen. Just think about this. I do it on one breath, but I don't think I can. People who care about women's reproductive freedom, people who care about labor, people who care about civil rights, people who care about economic fairness, people who care about climate change, people who care about sensible gun laws, people who care about freedom to read, people who care about LGBTQ rights, people who don't like bullies, people who prefer truth to lies, people who used to be Republicans, people who like to vote. It's a long list, and I could add more. Today's GOP has made a lot of enemies. And our common cause has led to one electoral victory after the next. We kicked him out of office. We won, pushed back their red wave. Every subsequent election, we've outperformed. And we're going to keep winning until this threat is over. Oh, oh. And that's just not unimportant. While we're at it, we're supporting some of the most effective forward-looking governance we've seen in decades. I mean, the accomplishments of the Biden administration, from brilliant foreign policy to major domestic accomplishments, is nothing 
any young American has ever seen. And in states run by Democrats, rights are protected, economies are growing, workers are better off. In the country, inflation has come way down. Our economy is the strongest in the world. No one thinks we're close to done because the damage we inherited was so deep. But we're showing that we can make life better for Americans and save our democracy at the same time. Wow. Meanwhile, let's turn back to the GOP for a minute. They can't confirm a military appointment. They can't pass a budget. They can't even pass a continuing resolution. They certainly can't govern. And they can't walk away from the poisonous cult they hope to fool the rest of us into drinking with them. One year to go. I'll see you guys on the front lines, and I'll see you right back here after this quick break. Don't go away. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Okay, as I told you, we're a year out from this unbelievably important election. And a year from now, when we take a breath, having left it all on the field and have saved this democracy, I want you to remember that the kickoff conversation that we had at the beginning of this year was about really about fundamental freedoms, the most basic level. And I can't think of anybody better to have that conversation with than Jeremy Young, Pan America's Freedom to Learn director. He's the guy identifying and telling us about gag orders, strangling schools and libraries across the country. He's also Penn's point person on uh, uh, my word, not his, but the partisan efforts to undermine higher education. And he's out with a new report quantifying the efforts by governments, by governments to impose gag orders and other limitations on thought throughout the educational system. Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you, Edwin. Glad to be back. Okay, so why do you need another report, and what does this one say? Oh, I wish we didn't need any more reports, Edwin. I really do. I wish I could just, you know, close up my shop and go go home and relax for about a, a year and a half uh, because educational censorship is over. But unfortunately, uh, educational censorship is the opposite of over. Uh, so we are putting out uh, now a, a report every year on this educational censorship legislation at the state level, uh, because every year there is a new round of educational gag orders and other censorship laws. And what we found this year uh, is that the number of censorship laws did not go down. Uh, it pretty much stayed the same uh, as last year. We had uh, 10 new laws, four new policies passed uh, in states across the country. Um, and over 100 bills, 110 bills actually introduced. Uh, but the real story is not in the numbers. The real story is uh, that these censorship laws changed. Um, the tactics changed, both in K-12 and higher ed uh, restrictions. So uh, for a little bit of background, in the last two years when we've done these reports, we found that the K-12 and higher ed restrictions are very, very similar. They, they, they all include this list of so-called divisive concepts. Uh, relating to critical race theory and other issues around race and gender. Uh, they have very similar language. They're based on the same model. Um, and this year, uh, bills like that didn't get as much traction as they did in previous years, in part because they had uh, you know, really passed in a lot of red states already. 
Uh, instead, we saw two new types of bills that really uh, emerged this year. First, in the K-12 space, a real shift from censorship of race uh, and class, classes about race and slavery in American history to censorship of LGBTQ plus topics and identities. So uh, clones of the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida from last year, uh, huge increase in those bills, 39 bills of that type and other uh, LGBTQ plus restrictions. Uh, you know, five of these bills passed this year, the largest significant, largest single component of the bills that passed. Um, really a pivot toward a sort of anti-trans panic and trying to legislate that in K-12 schools. Now, in higher ed, it was a different story. In higher ed, the focus remained squarely on race. But instead of uh, restricting uh, education in the classroom, uh, we saw bills that moved beyond the classroom to restrict choices that uh, universities and colleges make in terms of their governance and their autonomy from political control. So the most familiar of these would be uh, bans on DEI offices and initiatives which passed in two states, uh, Texas and Florida. But also there were bills and laws that restricted uh, general education curricula, majors and minors uh, being created or, or done away with, tenure and hiring and firing practices, uh, university accreditation, even uh, a law in Florida that allowed or required uh, politicians and political appointees to rewrite university mission statements to do away with any mention of diversity. And the idea seems to be that, uh, you know, these laws and bills uh, are, are designed not to uh, they sort of skirt the censorship issue. We're not going to restrict what a teacher says in class. We're just going to make sure that that teacher doesn't get a chance to ever teach that class where that material will be relevant. Um, so it really is an escalation. It really is quite troubling. Uh, and those are our main findings. Uh, well, it's a lot to bite into. Um, on higher ed, so I guess I'm trying to understand what the what the what they're really after, right? They're trying to set, they're trying to create an enemy, and saying that higher ed is an enemy because it's a propaganda machine, and it's a propaganda machine that is arguing. What that America needs to take action on its diversity somehow. I mean, I, I don't understand the the claim that that's behind all of this. Help me understand that better. I mean, what they're claiming is that uh, DEI initiatives are themselves uh, censorship or racist in some way because they give preferential treatment to students of minority backgrounds. Of course, they do that because those students are disadvantaged in every other aspect of college life, uh, and because they, uh, they emphasize particular, you know, ideas or ways of viewing race and society. Now, look, at Ken America, we agree that there are, that sometimes DEI offices make mistakes and, you know, try to impose particular views of race on teachers as, as a sort of prescriptive idea. But for the most of what DEI offices do is they make students feel welcome. They provide useful trainings and conversations. They, they support difficult dialogues. Uh, you know, they are a, a place to, to, you know, for students to meet and hang out uh, who, who feel uncomfortable elsewhere on campus. You know, these are all key functions of a DEI office. Also, they uh, tend to oversee support for veterans, for first-generation students. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a ridiculous straw man is what it is. It is an attempt to turn DEI into the kind of boogeyman that these same forces turned critical race theory into in 2021. 
and, you know, and then use that as a way of seizing control of colleges, which, you know, because of our increasing political polarization by education, are coming to be seen on, the, on by many corners of the right as a liberal, you know, a site of liberal power. Um, to take control of those colleges and simply dismantle them and replace them with some some sort of propaganda factory for the right. Well, so Donald Trump has promised, um, for those who he doesn't put in his concentration camps, he's promised a national university that would, I assume, teach a curriculum. I'm just trying to understand how far traditional education is from what they actually want. What is it that would go in the curriculum of his national university? Is it, you know, the 1776 nonsense and, you know, um, a theory that slavery was good for some of the people who had to endure it? It's probably the 1776 nonsense. But the idea of a national university is interesting because there have been calls for that on the left as well recently, arguing that it would, that national, a system of national universities, which is common in many other countries, would sort of insulate universities from the vagaries of state lawmakers, uh, which is what we're seeing uh, today, where you know, you're increasingly getting two systems of education, one in red states and one in blue states. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, my own feeling about it is that, you know, it, it's, Certainly other countries are able to, to manage having national universities that, that have academic freedom. But you really have to have some careful safeguards in place because ultimately, you know, you are you are risking centralizing the ability to control and censor what is taught in those universities um, in one place. And at least now, you know, the, the governors in, in states like Florida are not able to control what is taught in Massachusetts, but in a national university system, they might be. Yeah, I mean, we have plenty of non, we have plenty of private and nonprofit universities that aren't run by any state. Um, I mean, they're they're subject to state law, but they're not run by the states. And uh, um, and we have more of those than any other country. So we didn't build a national. I mean, we, we, uh, America's largely about private enterprise, and so we allowed private universities to step in. And uh, um, there are a lot of things that other countries do with their governments that we just have the private sector do. And, and higher ed was one of them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I certainly wouldn't be opposed to, to, I mean, honestly, I think the more, the more reputable, well-regulated universities, the better. um, And the more students enroll in universities, the better. But ultimately I don't think that's what president Trump is talking about when he proposes a national university. I think he's talking about a propaganda factory. And that's really yeah. the question. You know, would a national university have intellectual freedom, have academic autonomy from the government to set its own, its own, you know, ideas and curricula, or would it be you know, something that's directly controlled by by government power from an ideological perspective? And I think that would really depend on how it was structured and who was in charge. Yeah, it's the same question that that many are having about in this crisis of journalism, whether there should be some nationally supported journalism as there is as like the BBC or others where you can have credible, mostly credible journalism funded by the state as opposed to uh, journalism disappearing as we're having it across much of the United States. So it's it's a related conversation about what you can and can't trust in the hands of 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 the government. Um, 
Right, and of course, we do have uh, things like the Voice of America that, or PBS mm-hmm. that are national, and NPR that are national, you know, journalism seem to work out okay Supported, right. now. Definitely supported yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, uh, this battle played out in school board races everywhere this year, and Moms for Liberty, the folks who are um, most vociferous about K through 12 book bans. They did not have a good showing anywhere. They didn't. Um, and I mean, of, of course, that's encouraging, right? It's good to see. It, it, certainly, it doesn't seem that, uh, you know, at openly advocating for the banning of books is a net positive when you are uh, running for school board. Uh, you, you know, I think um, I think one of the comments I heard, I can't remember who said this, uh, on election night uh, this year was, uh, you know, it, it seems like uh, criti- critical race theory is not, uh, or, or attacking critical race theory is not the best way to win a critical race. Um, <laughs> which I think was a good, good comment. But, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, um, we do have to keep in mind that the, these elections were, you know, essentially because of demographic shifts, more favorable to progressive candidates overall nationally. And so I don't think it's, it's an indicator necessarily that these uh, you know, that these are, these things are going to be unpopular a hundred percent of the time across you know across all elections. What I really think it's an indication of is that we need to keep the pressure on. We need to keep uh, you know raising these concerns so that people see this uh, you know not only as a bad idea to ban books and restrict history education, but as something that is so so significantly bad that it requires, uh, you know, a political consequence that, you know, so a candidate you might vote for, you find that that candidate wants to ban books and censor classrooms, that that candidate doesn't get your vote anymore. That's what we've seen happen with, you know, attacks on uh, on Democratic elections in the the midterm elections, and we need to see it on this as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of the school board elections in, you know, ruby red Iowa, um, where... Uh, I think people just said, look, our our school, we know what our schools need, we parents. And those of you who think you know better than all our teachers and want to tell everybody, you know, my way or the highway, um, that's just not how we want to raise our kids. And they vote. I mean, Iowa isn't a progressive state. (laughs) They they sure did. They sure did have a great. Uh, set of school board elections that weren't partisan. They just were like, we're not going to let you make them partisan. Right. I was, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think it's a good sign. Yeah. Well, um, but again, this year is being an election year. <clears throat> I would expect more, um, more legislation coming from uh, the same guys who brought you uh, the the DEI stuff, the same guys who brought you the critical race theory stuff on, on issues that poll as divisive this year. I mean, I can't predict what they you know, are, but I'm sure there will be. Can't teach so the history of Palestine or something, right? right. You can expect it. So, to <laughs> exactly. So, so it's an interesting question. I mean, we, we, we get into this a little bit in the report, what we expect to see happen in 2024. First of all, you know, one of the reasons there's so much pivoting going on this year is that lawmakers who are pushing this legislation seem consistently to be, you know, even though there are sort of narrow paths by which they can 
make a compelling case for something like banning instruction on LGBTQ issues in K through three grades, they and still be popular, right? They seem to, to to continually move toward the more and more unpopular formulations of these ideas. So, you know, even someone like Nikki Haley saying that she wants to ban, you know, discussion or any discussion of homosexuality all the way through high school, right? That's supposedly a more moderate candidate on the Republican side. Um, so, you know, but because these uh, bills are polling poorly, and because some of them, at least particularly the Stop Woke Act in Florida, have been partially stayed by the courts, um, we are seeing now the, you know, these pivots that we saw in 23, and we expect to see even further pivoting in 24. Uh, what we, we think we will see in 2024, certainly more in the K-12 states, more anti-LGBTQ plus bills. Um, in higher ed, you know, more DEI bans, more attacks on accreditation in particular. Um, there seems to be a growing movement uh, interested in attacking and banning gender studies in law. We saw two bills uh, this year that proposed to do that. Neither one became law, but both were seriously considered. Um, and we also saw uh, New College of Florida, which has been the subject of a takeover by uh, a very conservative out-of-state sort of Manhattan Institute-run board, um, ban or take the first steps toward banning gender studies there. Um, the other thing I, I think we'll see, uh, you know, certainly is some sort of response to these campus controversies around Israel and, and Palestine, which at the moment looks like it's going to manifest primarily in two ways. First, uh, in an attempt to, um, to ban Students for Justice in Palestine or other pro-Palestinian student organizations on campus, a deeply censorious restriction of students. Uh, and second, in uh, in an attempt to uh, mandate that universities remain neutral on public issues. Now, we've argued at great length that while universities may choose to be neutral on issues of public concern, mandating it is always a disaster. It, it leads to either you know the state prescribing a list of topics that universities can't talk about, or the the state not prescribing that list and then being able to enforce it based on the, the whims of state leaders. Um, so, you know, we're, we're expecting to see a, a move toward that uh, battlefield, um, and we certainly think that this is not going to go away in 2024. So just so we are, are completely clear with everybody listening, when a state says you can't talk about something, that's censorship, right? And that's not to say that it's a good idea to talk about it. That's not to say that anything you say about it is smart or helpful, but it's a pretty deep-rooted thing in the United States that you can say something dumb and unhelpful, and you're allowed to say it. And the government, the government shouldn't be telling you you can or can't. And and so this expectation that the government is going to set rules about what we can talk about and can't talk about um, is so shocking to me, particularly when, Jeremy, when you have a Supreme Court that has sort of perverted the First Amendment, but they've gone so far as to say, look, it's not just the words that you can say whatever you want, but your money is words too, and you can spend whatever you want to get whatever you say heard by more people. I mean, they've taken this most expansive idea, and now we're going to say, yeah, but we can tell you what you can and can't talk about. I just don't think, I just don't know how anybody's going to put up with that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, these what we're predicting here is that restrictions in universities are going to move away from 
faculty where the, the, the key issue is academic freedom, which is, you know, the court, Supreme Court considers a special uh, uh, provision of the First Amendment, um, to uh, two different groups at universities, university leaders, presidents, provosts, administrators, and students. Um, and those two groups have different kinds of First Amendment protections from faculty. Students tend to have robust First Amendment protections, especially at college where they're adults. Um, and the idea that you know student clubs can be can be restricted is, is rather blatantly unconstitutional. You've seen even uh, Governor DeSantis try to roll this back, uh, this attempt to ban student clubs in Florida. Um, university administrators, it's more complicated because they aren't faculty, so they don't have academic freedom, and they are employees of the state at some level. So the real uh, ground on which this this concern about censorship rests is the idea of institutional autonomy. This is something that isn't talked about as much with universities in the United States as it is in Europe and other, other parts of the world. But ultimately, uh, you know, the, there is a sense that universities, even though they are public universities, are government agencies in a sense, they have to remain independent at some level and insulated from political, direct political and ideological control, or you simply don't have a university. You don't have an environment of intellectual freedom, which is what a university is. And so universities, uh, you know, technically, yeah, administrators work for the government, but if you don't give those administrators the right to speak freely on matters that they feel impact their institution, uh, then you are creating a, a chilling effect that will uh, apply not only to administrators, but faculty, staff, and students, and really everyone involved in the university. So it's a very serious challenge. And the part that frustrates me the most here, Edwin, is that there are people sitting around in state legislatures right now dreaming up ways that they can censor universities and get around the First Amendment. I mean, why is anyone interested in doing that? The goal at a university should be to have maximum intellectual freedom for everyone. Instead, we have legislators looking for maximum censorship. Yeah. I mean, I, f first, shout out to um, my students and alumni at Brandeis University, a, a historically Jewish university, who all wrote a letter um, threatening to stop donations unless a pro-Palestinian group that had been banned is reinstated and for the same reason. They don't agree with them at all, but they thought uh, banning uh, uh, students from saying things, even things that they think are appalling, is a bad idea. Bad idea. So shout out to them. Um, uh, this notion of of starting by saying, here, you know, here's some things the university can't comment on. But you also said, and here's some topics that they can't teach. Um, I mean, the, the, the danger here is to the fabric of our democracy. It's also, um, I mean, we do have the greatest universities in the world and not like one of them. We have like many of them. And that isn't just because we're richer than every place else. You know, the other the other nation that sort of got a lot of them is England, and they're not nearly as wealthy, but they have built in a lot of freedoms. And it turns out that great universities, great universities um, um, are a, a creature of freedom. They, they come from the freedom of thought of the people who are in them, the ability for people to be curious about stuff. I mean, this really risks undermining one of the um, greatest assets of our country. You know, one of the things that was most heartbreaking as we put together this report um, was we rounded up a series of, of surveys on how teachers and college professors 
were affected by these laws that had already gone into effect. It's the first time that there's been a collection of these surveys that are all in one place and where you can really see the impact of how these laws affect teachers. And the results were absolutely heartbreaking, especially in, among college teachers in Florida uh, who really you know, responded to an AAUP survey uh, in the way you would expect uh, you know, people living in, a, in an authoritarian state to respond and not in a democracy. They talk about be living in fear of having students report them to the government because of something they say in class. They talk about you know, one, one person says that they have uh, that, that, that they have already had a student uh, threaten to report them to the government for something they did or did not say unless the student's grade was raised. Uh, you know, there there are uh, examples in this in, in there of uh, departments with, that are empty of faculty because professors have left and no one else is willing to come. Uh, you know, failed searches, faculty having to do the work of two and three colleagues because uh, they, their departments are so small, and faculty losing out on federal research grants because the grant reviewers uh, require are trying to enforce a, a DEI requirement and are unable to do so because Florida bans that requirement from being met in, in, the, in the universities. So it really, I mean, it's a disastrous system. It is wreaking untold damage to Florida's and Texas's universities. Um, and, you know, it, it, the other states that have gag orders have this damage as well. This is just going to continue until lawmakers back off and stop trying to regulate intellectual freedom out of universities. Let's take the counter for a minute so that we can compare them. Um, I know faculty members who whose research leads them into areas that are very unpopular. You know, I mean, one example is a biologist, an evolutionary biologist whose research leads to um, at least the possible uh, conclusion that some aspects of our behavior are genetic as opposed to we get to decide everything. And and um, that faculty member is sort of roundly told by colleagues, hey, don't talk about that stuff. That's really that that's very damaging. Um, this is the kind of informal censorship on the left that we sometimes see in colleges. Compare that to the censorship by government and talk about the differences. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And when there, there is, uh, there isn't a sort of epidemic of informal censorship of of uh, faculty, of students on college campuses, although I'll note that the, the censorship of students, uh, typically, according to surveys that we've seen, is not coming from um, from their teachers, but rather from their peers. Uh, so there's two kinds of censorship at work here, the, the censorship of students by their peers outside of class and censorship of, uh, you know, of, of professors by their colleagues, uh, you know, some kind of professional setting. Um, you know, these things are bad, right? We, we, we think, you know, it's really important to uh, inculcate values of free expression on campus to increase viewpoint diversity and political diversity on faculty. You know, that's not an issue. These are easy calls to make. Really. Uh, the problem is that, you know, A, uh, government censorship doesn't solve these problems. It doesn't make them go away. But B, government censorship is much, much worse than informal cultural censorship. If you, you know, if, if you are not able to say something because you are afraid of social disapproval, you know, that is challenging. But if you are afraid of the official government suppression of speech, that is much more threatening. 
Uh, and, you know, I hate to go back to the founding fathers on this, Edwin, but when the founding fathers were sitting around writing the First Amendment, they were not losing sleep at night over that someone on a college campus might pressure someone else to think something. They were losing sleep over the official government suppression of speech. And that's what we're seeing in these laws. That's, that's the greater threat. They're both threats. We can, we can say that they're both threats, but we have to keep in mind what the priorities are. Yeah, one can lead to actual jail time for you, and the other, you know, may make you unpopular. Now, we haven't seen any jail time uh, in any of the laws that have passed, um, but there, right. you know, it, has been, uh, it has been mentioned in a few bills that have been introduced. And there was a bill in Texas, um, an earlier version of the bill that became law this year on DEI, that would have created an official state blacklist for faculty or staff who advocated for DEI on their campuses. They would have been unable to teach at any university or work at any university, uh, public university in the state for one year or five years after a second violation. Now, that didn't become law, but, you know, the fact that it was being promoted, that there are still commentators who say that, uh, you know, that's what should have been law is really very troubling. Um, I don't want to go here, but I think I have to. Um, partly because, again, this is the beginning of a big election year. And I, I don't know how to have this conversation about censorship of, you know, of sort of an expanding set of topics without reference to a mid-20th century notion of totalitarianism. And by that, I just mean politics is total. It's everything. It's just grown to encompass everything. So science gets politicized by climate change deniers. And again, during COVID, sports is now political as if it somehow is a matter of electoral significance that a football player is dating a pop star, right? There's a conspiracy theory that gives a political explanation to everything, everything. Uh, and so that means there's not much room for ideas to exist outside of a political lens. Personally, I spent a lot of time in politics, and I think it is incredibly stupid for both ideas and politics to view them all through one lens. But first, Jeremy, am I crazy to even put that on the table, that this is a totalizing moment? And then, like, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with ideas in their own sphere and not try and make them all politics? You know, I think that um, that it, you know, the, as the as the, the radical feminists said in the '60s and '70s, the personal has always been political. You know, that these issues have always been political and politicized. The main difference I see is the way that our society is so is so politically polarized today. So there are there is less tolerance for heterodox political beliefs and. Beyond tolerance, there simply are fewer people with heterodox political beliefs. You know, the parties are very stratified. Communities are increasingly stratified. Uh, you know, and so what is happening here on college campuses is that, you know, there are fewer and fewer places in this country where people who have different political views or, or backgrounds or, or, or social views or experiences come together and talk about these controversial issues. And there's a reason for that. It's, I mean, it's increasingly difficult to have those conversations. And college remains one of those places, one of the few places where people can still do that. The problem is we tend to put students, and again, these are 18 to 21-year-olds in many cases, uh, you know, we tend to put these students in, in, you know, in college. In many cases, they have 
gone through a high school program where which has significant restrictions on dissent because you know, constitutional jurisprudence around the First Amendment very different in high school than in college. Um, and then they come into a cl- college classroom, come into a college environment. We tell them, okay, we're going to talk about the issues of the day now. And, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want. Go for it. And they don't have the training, and they're going into some kind of very difficult situation that a lot of other Americans avoid, even much older and more experienced Americans. What we have to do uh, is not just make college a sort of place to fight it out, Thunderdome style, uh, on politics, but instead make it a place to learn how to have these conversations effectively. You know, this involves free expression education from orientation to graduation. That's what we need. And, you know, we, we have to model that behavior on campus. We have to demonstrate it. We have to explain it. We have to explain what the principles are, how you can have a meaningful discussion, what is and is not allowed on campus um, in, in terms of speech, um, and just you know, really educate people. That's the way we get out of this problem, where everything is politicized and everything is polarized. We have to create, we have to teach our students how to have difficult conversations in a productive way. Yeah, well, that's got to start before college. I mean, maybe it starts with just media literacy. So people begin to be understand the ideas they're exposed to. Um, yeah, I, don't know. I, I, I agree. Got to start early. It's a big, complicated task. So, so we didn't spend enough time. I mean, we spent most of our time talking about higher ed. And, and thank you for that. And you know, it's something that I'm particularly passionate about. But I did start as a K through 12 teacher. So just say a little bit more about the self censorship that you see there based on, on the laws you've seen um, bandied about. So we've seen not only self-censorship, but also administrative censorship. You know, there were some mm. incredible studies done on this this year. Um, the, the best ones done by the, the RAND Corporation, which, which had a major survey in the field. They were saying 8,000 teachers uh, for numerical results, and then they got 1,400 of them to fill out the, the open, open answer, you know, comment boxes. So really an incredibly large study. Uh, and what they found is dramatic evidence that these laws are negatively impacting teachers. The, the, the most shocking statistic that they found was that um, not only a quarter, have a quarter of all faculty, um, all, all, sorry, all K-12 teachers that they surveyed reported that they are, uh, that they were asked by an administrator to censor some top content in their class because it might be considered controversial or political. But that percentage went up in states that had educational gag orders on the books. It went up further for social studies uh, teachers, and it went up the furthest all the way to 51% for social studies teachers who were black or African-American. Um, so there's a differential impact of these laws on, on teachers who are teaching you know, history and, and social sciences, teachers who are black or other minority group uh, identity identified. Um, and, you know, some of the comments in this study and other studies were, were absolutely heartbreaking. You know, there, there was a, a teacher who said you know, very memorably, um, you know, I am I am teaching. Um, you know, I, I, I don't teach critical race theory. I never have taught critical race theory. But now I don't teach Frederick Douglass either because I don't think the people in my district can tell the difference between Frederick Douglass and critical race theory. Uh, and it's just it's just devastating. You know, there, there are all sorts of comments like this. Teachers, teachers in music education. There was a separate report on this 
saying that they're unable to talk about jazz uh, with a, and explain the cultural context about jazz because they're afraid that parents will report them to the government or that their that their administrators, uh, you know, will will tell them they can't do that anymore. Um, you know, p- teachers in uh, you know in, in science classes saying that they're, they're they're not you know biology classes are not able to talk about human reproduction anymore because they're afraid that they'll, they'll get reported. You know, we have we have created this sort of Politburo style. Uh, you know, scenario where everyone is reporting on teachers all the time, and you know, teachers are just not free to do their jobs, and and it, it is it is leading to epidemics of self censorship, of administrative censorship, and official censorship. And I mean, but it all sounds like the like the pool of things being censored is is similar. You couldn't teach, you couldn't assign bury my heart at wounded knee because. It describes the end of of uh, the free range as a way of life for um, indigenous Americans and the uh, behavior of the U.S. Army as it put that period of history um, uh, to an end. Couldn't couldn't teach that somehow. Can't. I mean, what do you do if you're a school teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you want to talk about the history of your city? Where there was, where there was a thriving black community that got burned down by uh, its white neighbors. How, how do you how do you have that? How do you teach that? Is it illegal to teach about that? Is it legal to say it happened? What, what do you do? You got hit by a meteorite. I mean, well, and- what are you supposed to say? <laughs> I mean, this is the most complicated part because. It's not that it's exactly illegal to teach the, the particular books or particular ideas. It is, it is completely unclear whether it is legal to teach those ideas because these vague principles are banned under these laws. And then, you know, every district interprets it differently. Some don't interpret it at all. Some states will come in and enforce the laws, but only selectively in certain districts and not others. Uh, you know, so, so ultimately, the way that these laws are primarily enforced is not through direct official censorship by the government. It's happened sometimes, but the main censorship that's going on is self-censorship because teachers are, you know, they have no idea whether if they talk about something like Bury My Heart at Wounded Me and Tulsa Massacre, uh, that they are, whether, whether or not they are going to be judges in violation of the law. And so they simply, you know, they want to keep their jobs. They want to feed their families and their kids. Uh, and so they avoid teaching these things at all. And in addition, because it's so unclear, you know, there there are also reductions in how school districts and school administrators are helping and supporting these teachers. One study that came out this year showed that professional development on difficult dialogues decreased dramatically for teachers in purple and red congressional districts compared to where it was just a couple of years ago. Hmm. Well, and 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 just so. Again, this is something we have to say out loud. Um, the use of ambiguity to and ambiguity and snitches. You can call. You can complain about so and so. And ambiguity is not a is it, it's not an accident. This is a f- well established, well known tactic of censors and authoritarian regimes f- going way back in time. This is not a. This isn't just. Oh, they're not being clear, and um, and you know we're we're finding their self censorship. It is a certainty when you set up ambiguous rules about what you can and can't say, and then tell people they can snitch on you for saying it that you will have self censorship. 
That's exactly right. And, you know, what I will say, though, and this is the good news, um, you know, we did find this year that there is a lot more pushback against this, this kind of censorship than we've seen in the past. Uh, certainly a lot of legal pushback. We found 13 lawsuits uh, that have been filed against these against educational gag orders in, uh, that, were, that are actually still active, um, of which, plus several additional ones that are not. Two of those lawsuits resulted in partial stays on, sorry, three of them resulted in partial stays on the Stop Woke Act in Florida, and others are still ongoing, and we expect to see more filed very soon. Um, the other thing that we've seen, though, is a lot more organized opposition to these laws. Two years ago, when I started working on this issue, there were very few organizations or individuals who were willing to stand up for public education or higher education in particular uh, against this onslaught. They felt that the smart move was to keep their heads down and wait for it to pass. We're not hearing that anymore. And ultimately, you know, there are organizations all over the country now and individuals all over the country who are speaking out and speaking up and really fighting back against this, this, this legislation. So, you know, and, and that, that pushback, especially on the legal front, has already resulted in shifting tactics. Ultimately, I think that, you know, the, the, if, we can, if we're able to keep up this pressure, if we're able to make there be real political consequences for pushing this kind of legislation, we will be able to turn the tide here. But it is a long road, and we continue to see damage done to educational institutions around the country. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, this is the conversation I wanted to have as the kickoff to what I'm going to be talking about for a full year here as we go into um, an election campaign. And I know you are not partisan, um, but the idea of freedom, what it means, how we think about it, how our laws and our habits um, encourage it um, is really an important place to start uh, as we think about what our government and our candidates, what our government does and what our candidates say they want in the future. And um, I know you are in the thick of it, and I know you are in the thick of continuing to monitor efforts to, um, oh my gosh, to suppress free thought in America. Something, a sentence I never thought I'd say, but if you live long enough, you're going to yeah. say something, right? Um, and it's just Penn's work is awesome. It's awesome. Take a second because we have, oh, easily a minute and a half. Um, tell everybody about Penn broadly, not just your program, because it's just a great organization. Well, thank you for those kind words, Edwin. Yes, Penn America is a 100-year-old organization uh, based in New York City and, uh, and Washington, D.C. We have offices in Los Angeles and a new one we just opened in Miami. Uh, actually, we are a, a free expression and human rights and literature organization. Our, our members are professional writers. If you are a professional writer uh, of any type, uh, please feel free to join. We'd love to have you on board. Um, and, you know, really, we our job is to celebrate literature and defend the freedoms that make it possible. So we have literary awards, literary gala every year. And also we do this free expression work where we defend, uh, you know, free, free expression in, a, in, a, you know, in education, in international programs, uh, in you know, digital technology and other areas, uh, really a broad service, full service free expression program, um, and we are continuing to grow. We're, we're, you know, I think I think we're a very exciting sort of vibrant organization, uh, building a free, really important free expression shop, and, and playing a role that you know few organizations in this country play. We'd love to, if you'd like to learn more about Ten America, please uh, visit our website at ten.org. That's e e n dot o r g. 
Yeah. I mean, Jeremy, you're doing this work and focusing on what's going on here in the U.S. But wow, I mean, during the Soviet years, you were protecting writers um, in the Soviet bloc and making it possible for their words to be heard around the world. I mean, it's just this organization has protected writers against censorious regimes for a hundred years all over the world, which is, you know what, got them prepared to do it here too, if we need it. So I just, it's really, it's fabulous work. And thank you for joining me again. And I, I know we will talk again. I always enjoy it. Thank you so much, Edwin. Glad to be here. Take care. All right, everybody. Jeremy Young, uh, fabulous as always from Pan America. He's the uh, 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 director of the Freedom to Learn uh, program. You can see why. We are going to transition from uh, this kind of conversation to uh, much more focused on social media with Claire Atkin when we come back. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay. Um, we are back. And I, were you listening to the news uh, during that break? Did you hear the story about Elon Musk promising to rain down thermonuclear legal terror on people? Well, I mean... He's a big guy with billions and billions of dollars, and he's planning on dumping all of that on people who aren't, you know, quite so big. Well, that's what bullies do. But my guest, Claire Atkin, is tough enough to take it. She is the co-founder of Check My Ads. Check My Ads, we've, had, we've talked before. It's a fabulous effort to solve an enormously complicated problem, which is the placement of digital misinformation on unsuspecting websites and the reverse the placement of legitimate ads on sites that don't deserve the support of major brands. Um, and for a long time, the only thing I thought about that when I said that was Fox, but now X, which used to be Twitter, uh, falls in that category. And boy, has Claire done something about that. Claire, welcome back. Hi, Ed. It's so good to be here. Thanks for your continued attention to check my ads. So I want to... Um, I have a lot I want to talk to you about. But since we just came off a news story of a completely furious Elon Musk, and, you know, who could blame him? His rocket blew up again today. But um, in his non-rocket business, um, many people, particularly journalists who have used, um, used to use Twitter and some who still do because they need to, they find it more and more toxic more and more anti-Semitic, more and more bigoted, uh, white supremacist nonsense of a place. You've done something about that. Talk about that. Yeah, we're doing a few things, Ed, in conjunction with Media Matters and Accountable Tech and a whole Stop Toxic Twitter accountability project. Um, what we're doing is we are following the money to find out how people who publish hate build their businesses. And often people build businesses that are basically hate machines off of advertising. And Twitter is now, unfortunately, one of those businesses. Yeah. So, I mean, just to remind everybody, Fox was one of those businesses. Um, uh, uh, Breitbart was one of those businesses. But in, in both of those cases, um, the work that you do by sharing with advertisers, hey, did you know your ad 
ran next to a story about, you know, like the, the good Nazis protesting in front of Disneyland. And the advertisers go, no, I didn't know. I don't want my ads there. You, 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 you tell people that. You spend your time telling advertisers about this. And what's been the impact of, of sharing with advertisers where their ads are showing up? Well, the impact has been enormous. So Twitter used to be a place that was really, really important. Okay, I I think, Ed, you'll agree, based on listening to your show over the year or so that I've known of you, is that we are dealing with an authoritarian power grab in America. Yes. Yes, you could say that. (laughs) It's really unfortunate. But the one thing that authoritarians hate is transparency and accountability. And they hate transparency and accountability because then they can't get away with the kinds of things that they try to get away with. And Twitter was the platform for consequences, you know, but up until about a year ago, it was the place where journalists thrived, where any activist could contact any company or any any person could say, hey, listen, this thing happened to me and I need to be made whole somehow. Now, it was never per- a perfect platform, but it was the platform of accountability. And so it's not a surprise to me that Elon Musk, who is not pro-accountability or transparency, is doing everything he can to drive it into the ground. And one of the first things he did was he had mass layoffs. He took away all of Twitter safety. Uh, he took away content moder- moderation on the platform so anyone could harass anyone in all kinds of ways. And then he changed his advertising targeting method. And that's the thing that we focused on. Well, let's talk about that. What does that mean? Well, the company's revenue is primarily monetized but using user information to target people with ads. And over the course of the year, they've done a few things to change the way that ad revenue is collected, displayed, and then distributed. So one of the things they've done now is they've started sharing their ad revenue with big accounts on the internet, on the platform. And those big accounts are making a lot of money saying a lot of hateful things to go viral. So that's one thing, and it's why we are spending so much attention on Twitter now or on X. The second thing is that they're they're losing advertisers. Ever since Musk came into power and, and Twitter bought Twitter and then changed all the all the order of how they do things, 60% of all their advertisers left. They fled because they recognized that Twitter was being co-opted and they all of a sudden it was, yeah, yeah, it was a, what they call a brand unsafe place to be. And so they left and (coughs) Elon Musk responded to that by getting really uh, sneaky. So instead of cleaning up his act and stop stopping the spread of hate and racism and anti-Semitism, he just stopped labeling ads as ads. Hold on, hold on, hold on. A, I don't think that's legal. But B, so I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a, what can you call them anymore? I'm looking at a tweet. Let's, I'm just going to use that same old language. 
because I don't know what to call it. Yeah. I'm looking at a post on it's, X, and I don't know yeah. if it's a paid ad or if it's actually somebody's point of view. I, I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but there are ads on X that look like regular tweets, and it's impossible to tell right away if it's an ad. It looks the exact same as a regular tweet, but you can figure out if it's an ad by going to the top. Like There's like three little dots in an option button to the right of it, and if you press on that, then you can see, oh, why do I see this ad or you know, all these different menu options. But when you click on why am I being shown this ad, often it takes you to what is colloquially called in, on the Internet a 404 page or a, a page that does not exist. So not only is he not telling you when you're being advertised to, but no longer why you're being advertised to when you do figure out that it is an ad. And to your point, Ed, we think that's pretty illegal. Right. So you filed a complaint. That's right. So this Wednesday, that was just a few days ago, we filed with the Federal Trade Commission what is called a request for inquiry. So we don't decide whether something is illegal or not. The Federal Trade Commission does. And the Federal Trade Commission is concerned with fairness. So what we've asked them to do is say, you know, for the good of consumers and advertisers alike, could you please create a public database, get X to create a public database detailing all advertising on the platform? We need X to, of course, clearly label all ads. And the consequences of not labeling ads are that people can get scammed a lot more easily. And, of course, during a political election campaign, people can get fooled a lot more easily. Um, and, if, you know, the, the actual election campaigns, the advertising campaigns can be put under scrutiny for not being labeled as well. Clearly labeling ads is across the board a, a reasonable and legal thing to ask for. And then we think that the company should be fined for violating the, uh, it's a 2022 order that prohibits X from misrepresenting its ad practices and that they should give up their ill-gotten advertising gains from this shady practice. Well, good for you. Um, uh, I don't believe Mr. Musk reacted kindly to that filing. Um, uh, I certainly heard about it. Talk about that. Yeah, well, Musk, uh, there are, so Linda and Musk. So Linda Yaccarino is the CEO of Twitter and Elon Musk is the owner of Twitter and, or of X, I'm, I refuse to call it X. And then uh, what they have done is said over and over again that they are building a healthy business and that advertisers are safe there and that they've got all these new practices to make sure that ads don't go next to, you know, white nationalist content. And they, they are not telling the truth. And, uh, you know, I've told Linda personally that she's disingenuous and that advertisers see that they're disingenuous. Um, they did not respond to our request for inquiry to the FTC. And I think that that's kind of funny because it's possible that they don't want people to know about it. Well, here we are telling everybody. Um, but they're planning yeah. on filing suit against everybody, some kind of defamation suit or interference with business suit this week. 
Yeah. He's really going at people. So since Wednesday, we've actually had a lot of news, Ned. I I think you've seen, right? Yeah. Tell people. Since Wednesday. (laughs) So what happened is that Media Matters found IBM uh, advertising next to some really shady content. And then they even found other advertisers advertising literally next to hashtags that were about white pride or keep Europe white. And this was just totally untenable for so many advertisers. And then on top of that, Musk tweeted something in response to a paid sort of ex premium user. Um, this, this user was explaining why, quote, Hitler was right. And he was accusing Jewish communities in America of, quote, and I'm really sorry for saying this, um, dialectical hatred against whites and blamed them for flooding our country with, quote, and again, my apologies, hordes of minorities. And Musk responded to this tweet that, and he said, you have said the actual truth. Which led yeah. to um, a number of people saying that those are very old libels against the Jewish community that are well within the center of a couple thousand year anti-Semitic tradition. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I mean- advertisers said, OK, look, you're sharing ad revenue with with folks who are creating content for the sole purpose of making it go viral. And that and, and their methodology for doing that is lies and hatred because that has an ability to go viral. So you built your business on that. And then you want me, IBM, you want my brand next to that crap. And we're saying, no, we don't. We're not having it. And now um, so, so the value of Twitter continues to plummet. The revenues continue to plummet. And so he's going to lash out and sue you guys. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, already, so before Wednesday, 60% of advertisers had left. Since then, more and more are sort of falling like dominoes off the platform. Um, IBM was the first right after uh, he tweeted, you have said the actual truth. But then the very next day, Apple suspended ads on Twitter, which is a big, big account for them. You know, all the all the movie studios advertised on X up until yesterday, Lionsgate, Warner Bros, Paramount, they have all suspended advertising, Warner Bros, Disney. And this might be a death knell for this platform that used to be, as I said, a really critical platform for accountability and transparency yeah, in our country. It's very important. Very important. Hey, Claire, so so the one thing I've learned, though, is that companies who in a crisis say, I'm not going to advertise there, tend to sneak back over time. I'm thinking about all the people who said, oh, I will never, ever give money to a candidate who lied about the last election. You know what? They they kept that promise for about six weeks, and then the money started to go back to those candidates. Right. So, so how is it? How do you uh, make it so that companies like IBM don't say, oh, you know, nobody's looking. We can go back. Well, the, the one 
helpful thing to remember about these companies is that they care a lot about what consumers think and about what citizens think. And so what they have every day, you know, the, pe- the people who pay attention to these subjects are in the departments of, of advertising, yes, but they're also in communications, they're in the department of brand, the department of marketing, and they watch what is called sentiment, you know, public sentiment, really, really carefully. There's, I guess, two things that I say that we can do. One of them is just be loud, you know, on social media or whatever. I know that uh, it feels not that important. But actually, when we're loud on the forums and on the platforms, the people, the folks in these major Fortune 500 companies, they're actually measuring the sentiment about these issues. So they're watching the Pause for one second, second, Uh, Wait, hold on one second there. I think um, we need to explain this to people who don't know this. So on, uh, there are tools out there, um, very good, powerful tools that aren't even that expensive that companies use, but individuals can use them too, to actually aggregate and look at all of the opinions on any topic. And are they trending up? Are they trending down? Are people saying good things? Are people saying bad things about an idea, about a brand? Um, and they can be broken down by region, by time. Just remember that anything that happens online can be mined and is being mined. And sentiment is one of those things. Claire talked about it. Um, and I know it's it, anybody who's in the business knows it, but it's not obvious to those to, to the vast number of people who use these tools. Um, every single thing you do is is being mined absolutely being mined and marketers know it. And they, and that's why what Claire says, if you say something's terrible, um, the people who are trying to sell it are going to go, Oh, well, we don't want people to think that's terrible. And they're going to do something about it. That's right. Okay. They do. Sorry and, for the interruption. They, <laughs> they get reports every morning from their like company librarians. They will mm-hmm. say, here's what you need to know about what's going on in the news and what's going on on the internet today and your voice matters the second thing is that we need to dive deeper and this is where we really you know we've monitored the situation for years at check my ads my business partner nandani started a big campaign that defunded breitbart back in 2016 it's the seven-year anniversary of that campaign this weekend you know we've been in this business for as long as there has been a Trump in the White House and since. And we have been watching how this system works, how the business of hate makes money. And at Check My Ads, what we're doing is we're diving deeper into the supply chain of advertising. So we follow the money and we are looking to see where advertisers are showing up, where they don't intend to show up. And that's also... A really interesting fact, I think, to remember is that advertisers on the Internet don't have control over their own campaigns. I know it's wild to say, it's wild to hear, but they don't. And they don't because of the way the system, the Internet system, has been built. And so what we're doing is we're looking into the supply chain and we're holding the companies that are actually placing the ads accountable for what they call brand safety violations. So whenever Steve Bannon is getting money, whenever Charlie Kirk is getting money, whenever X is getting money from advertisers that don't intend to be there, we're right there in front of them. 
And so we have a big community that watches this stuff that is there with us. Um, We have our, we call them checkmates. We're called check my ads. All our members are called checkmates and we're always in the, in the loop with our checkmates. We meet monthly on zoom to help us figure out what's going on. You know, the reason that we could file with the FTC this week is because our checkmate went onto Twitter and found hundreds of examples of unlabeled ads with us. You know, it wasn't like, it's not like they're supporting our work and we're going and doing all the work. We are all collectively doing the work together. And I think that's a cool thing that everyone can do. Claire, why don't you tell people listening how they can be part of that? Oh, sure. And thank you. So at checkmyads.org, that's checkmyads.org, you can sign up as a checkmate. You can also sign up for our free newsletter. But if you sign up as a member, then it's like minimum $5 a month. And you come into our Zoom meetings and every month and we talk about what we're up to and we get lots of ideas from our community. And it's, it's a way that we can sustain the work and also be in community and and collectively fix the internet. And it's what gives us life, honestly. Yeah. And the work has been impactful. I mean, you talk about the enormous uh, economic hit that Breitbart took when people noticed what was going on. Um, You were also part of um, uh, a lot of the work uh, on Fox and their, the, the ad portion on their website is uh, it's certainly taken a hit. Um, do you know anything about um, their Fox renegotiations with the cable companies? Because cable companies aren't worth what they used to be. It's got to be less valuable for them too now. Yeah, Media Matters uh, is an is running a campaign sort of consistently called Unfox My Cable Box dot. Um, mm-hmm. Dot com, I think. I can't remember. But uh, Unfox My Cable Box is the campaign that helps people connect with their cable provider to say, hey, listen, like I want to pay for cable, but I do not want my cable fee to automatically fund Fox News. I don't believe in them. I don't believe that they're a, a news outlet at all, let alone uh doing good, let alone being a part of, you know, my life. I just, I don't think it's a value to me to pay for it. And so these cable companies are maybe listening, uh, but it's important that we do it regardless. It's important that we call them up uh, because the more people do it over time, the more they listen. And let me tell you, we, we are watching Fox and we are not seeing as much of the same rhetoric as we saw before this campaign before Unfox My Cable Box, before our campaign, uh, defundfoxnews.com, before the Dominion lawsuit, all of these consequences, you know, as I said, people who are pro-authoritarianism, they don't like consequences. They don't like accountability. But we are seeing that accountability has been levied on them, and they are a little bit more muted right now. We'll see what happens as the election season ramps up. But I think that we can we can call a little bit of a win here. Yeah. What what are you most concerned about as the election season ramps up? Well, we're watching the internet uh get a little more chaotic, more haywire. Um we're watching rumble video. 
uh, try to take on YouTube. It's basically YouTube for the alt-right at this point. Uh, anyone who's been kicked off of YouTube for anti-Semitic, uh, consistent anti-Semitic practices or, uh, you know, COVID disinformation, all, all kinds of really nasty stuff are being monetized on Rumble. Uh, so we are working on that. Advertisers are already starting to leave because they didn't know they were there. And we Hold talked about there. that. So, in our so that's really, imp- I'm sorry to interrupt. It's really important. Rumble was a co-sponsor with NBC News of the last yeah. Republican debate. How is yeah. NBC News willing to put their brand next to Rumble? Yeah, I, I think they should be asking that question right now. It's outrageous that they have done this. Um, Rumble is is not shy about who they are and what they support. And they amplify some of the worst conspiracy theories, the most hateful conspiracy theories on the Internet today. So the fact that NBC partnered with them to do this, to run the GOP debate, I think is a scandal. And it's something that I spoke about publicly. And I think internally at NBC, they, they probably had a lot of thoughts and discussions about as well. Yeah. Well, they didn't share it with anybody else. They haven't answered any questions about it. If you can hold them accountable, no. boy, that would be great. Well, Claire, <laughs> we've run out of time. But again, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to catch up and to learn about the good work you're doing. I hope that uh, the debris from the blown up rocket uh, this uh, this morning of Mr. Uh, uh, Musk's doesn't, as he say, fall on everybody who's um, uh who, who has given him a hard time. He's promising a heck of a lawsuit Monday. Um, but I expect that you've done everything right. And um, uh, uh, it, it will just be seen as um, nothing. And we'll oh, yeah. be accountable. Thank you. Yeah, we're not scared. It'll be fine. Nobody's scared, honestly. Yep. Like, he's ridiculous and everybody can see he's ridiculous. Bravo. Thank you, Claire, <laughs> as always. Thank you very much. I love your show, Ed. Appreciate you. Take care. All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I'm going to ask Steve Sheffy uh, uh, to talk a little bit about the Middle East. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Steve Sheffy has been active in Democratic and Jewish politics for quite a few decades. His newsletter, Steve Sheffy's Pro-Israel Political Update, comes out every Sunday and is a must read if you're interested in this topic. Steve, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. Thank you very much for hosting me. Hey, um, what can you update us on the current status of the war in Gaza and the tensions on Israel's northern border. And after that, we'll sort of get into some of the implications. Sure. It's been about 40 days now since Hamas brutally murdered about 1,200 people on October 7th in Israel. They wounded over 3,000 people. They took about 240 hostages. Among the people they murdered were roughly 32 Americans, maybe more. Um, The hostages include at least 10 Americans, maybe more. Um, They kidnapped babies, children, the elderly. They made no distinction 
Um, we're seeing now what's come out recently is we're seeing video footage from Israel showing that there were Hamas people, raped people, tortured people. Um, it was barbaric. It was awful. And while we in the United States are seeing mainly pictures of what Israel is doing in Gaza and Israel, they're seeing and continue to see these horror stories and one revelation after another, it just gets worse and worse about what happened on October 7th. Um, Israel did invade. Everyone knew they would. Israel invaded Gaza. They began with um, an air campaign designed to eliminate areas where the Hamas operatives are operating. Um, then they began a ground invasion. And the latest news we've discovered in Israel, and we many have known this for a long time, but Israel has confirmed that Hamas is using hospitals as bases of operation. So they've got command centers in hospitals. They've got tunnel networks under hospitals. Um, essentially, they've embedded themselves in civilian infrastructure precisely to create the horrible images that we're seeing on TV right now. Um, no one knows when this will end. Um, the hostages still have not. Well, I think only about four hostages have been released. So the hostages aren't released. Hamas still controls Gaza. And Israel's basic argument is that there was a ceasefire on October 6th. And it turns out that Hamas was using that ceasefire to plan for this attack. And we've seen video of Hamas leaders saying that they'll do it again and again and again. Uh, so people wonder how it's, what Israel feels is that it needs for this operation and successfully, the hostages have to be released and Hamas can no longer rule Gaza. It's an open question as to who would take their place. Someone has to. But if they if this war ends and Hamas is still there, it won't be an acceptable result. Um, uh, at least at this moment, I know American intelligence has independently said there's evidence of a Hamas command center, certainly at that very large and important Al-Shifra hospital, which is a real hospital and they need it. Um, but w w uh, at least at this moment, Israel hasn't um, released a lot of the evidence um, I think they showed us one, what looks like a shaft, but really hasn't um, shown us what's really going on that matches what they tell us is going on. Why do they say it's taking so long for them to, um, since they control that hospital now, it's so long for them to be able to uh, really show the world that evidence? You know, it's unclear what's going on in the, in the fog of war. It really is. Um, what I find situations like this, every military, you know, wars are about propaganda. So every military, this goes to the United States um, in all of our wars, every country is going is not, to, not, it's not objective journalism, what you hear from the military. Um, and certainly it isn't objective journalism, what you hear from Hamas. I do take some comfort from the fact that the United States, which is very concerned about civilian casualties, seems to be verifying what Israel is saying about the intelligence. Now, some intelligence they can only share with the United States, but not publicly, because there may be information there that would not want Hamas to know they have or not know the full extent of it. We have seen tunnels underneath the hospitals, um, and there's a whole spider web of tunnels underneath the hospitals and throughout Gaza. So it's not surprising that the Hamas terrorists are no longer there, and nor, and nor are the hostages. Israel did recover the bodies of one or two people who they thought were hostages, but that they now have confirmed were being killed. But uh, they have, we have not seen, you know, it's not as if it's like, um, I don't know what we'd see in the movies, like Situations Room, 
or what a command. I wouldn't even know what a command center actually looks like. We do see the tunnels underneath the hospitals. We do know they were operating from hospitals because they were shooting at people from the hospital. Um, typically, if you attack a ho- if you shoot at a hospital, you don't expect the hospital to shoot back. But that mm-hmm. is what happened early on here. So there were people there, armed people in the hospital, and uh, they probably were not providing routine medical care to the patients who were there, is my guess. Yeah. Um, and the hostage negotiations have slowed down a bit. Is there anything you can tell us about sort of the current state of those discussions? Um, you know, I know just what people read in the papers. Um, okay. The concern in Israel is that they we have to that they all must come back. I mean, it's not acceptable to say you know it's not a compromise to say okay, you took two hundred forty hostages. Why don't we split the difference? Give us one hundred twenty back on call of the day. So I think the issue is number one to make sure that all the hostages come back that there aren't people quote unquote missing when this is all through. And then the other part is what if you know if Hamas wants to pause while the hostages are returned, you know, what what will Hamas be doing at that time? Will they be regrouping? Will they be rearming? Will they still be firing missiles? Um, it's really difficult. It's just it's a horrible gut wrenching situation. Um, the hot the hostages must be brought back, but to leave Hamas with the capacity to take more hostages really isn't an answer. Um, you know, Israel tried this once before. Israel traded about 1,000 Hamas prisoners for one Israeli soldier, Elad Shalit. And among the people who Israel released are, were the people who planned what happened on October 7th. Uh, so the Israeli public itself is of, is of two minds. On the one hand, they very badly want to get the hostages back. And some, naturally the families, are willing to do anything to get the hostages back. And there are others who say that if you negotiate and trade prisoners with, and still leave Hamas in power, then what have you really accomplished? I mean, you've accomplished a lot in getting the hostages back. You're just setting yourself up for this to happen all over again. That's why many people believe the only real solution is a solution that results in Hamas no longer being in control of Gaza. Yeah. There, now, um, there's some question, um, particularly among uh, Democrats, many young Democrats, that um, there may be another path to not having Hamas in control of Gaza that isn't a military and a terribly bloody military path, and that is to finally get a two-state solution in place that that puts a real peace there. Um, uh, and that is not a military solution. That's a diplomatic solution that would get rid of the reason for um, Hamas um, and the reason for uh uh, this ongoing bloodshed. There was a demonstration outside the Democratic National Headquarters this week protesting the administration's support for Israel's at fights to, you know, militarily to remove Hamas from Gaza. And certainly the agony of Palestinians living in Gaza during this war is hard for anyone to see. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, I think you raise a lot of good points. And as you know from reading my newsletter, um, I've been, a, I am, and have been, and remain a very strong proponent of a two-state solution. In fact, I think you and I may have discussed this the first time I was on your program. A two-state solution is the only solution that will give Jews and Palestinians the state they deserve and need. Um, both they have two people, two states living in peace and dignity side by side with each other. That absolutely is the objective, and that absolutely has to be the end game. No question. 
There's also no question there's incredible agony on the Palestinian side. Um, the, regardless of whose fault it is, and I think it's pretty clear it's Hamas's fault for using them as human shields, not letting them leave. The fact remains, innocent Palestinians are being hurt and killed, and that's not good. The problem, though, is that Hamas, a two-state solution, would be satisfactory to many people, but not to Hamas. Hamas does not exist. That's not their goal. It might be the goal of the Palestinian Authority. We could go back and forth on whether it is. Um, it might be the goal of a future Israeli government. It's not the goal of this Israeli government. But Hamas is very clear. They want an Islamic state in what is now all of the West Bank in Israel. They're now looking for a two-state solution. They don't believe that Jews should have a state or even be in this entire area. So that would not solve Hamas's problem. But, and that's I, why I agree they're with not going to leave peacefully. Yeah, and they're not going to. And Hamas is not. They won't leave peacefully. So you have to first get rid of Hamas because there can't be anything. And then once that happens, the ideal solution, in the view of many, would be to somehow make the Palestinian Authority in charge of Gaza. And there are people who are, you know, you can agree or disagree with them, but there are people you could negotiate with and talk to. Well, so Steve, this is going to be a hard topic. Um, so, so this is going to take some background. So forgive me if I take a minute and ask this question, sure. because I, you have, you've been very clear. Two state solution is overdue and that the futures of the futures, the past, the present of Palestinians and Israelis are joined, whether they like it or not, they're joined and it can be better than it is. Right. Um, but, and, right. and you and I both know large majorities of both Palestinians and Israelis want peace and they want to live together, work together and be done with this, this siege that's been up in that part of the world on both of them for 70 years. So, so yet many people say to me, peace cannot happen as long as Bibi Netanyahu and his coalition lead Israel. They, they're not interested. Even in this moment of peril in Gaza, they seem to be doing things to undermine a future Palestine in the West Bank. That's one. And there are others who say, look, you can, certainly can't have peace while Hamas is ruling in Gaza, which you just said. And that seems to be something the military is, uh, you know, is working on. Um, and there are others who say, look, peace can't really happen while Abu Mazen heads the PA. Well, all right. Now we have, if that's background, we also have this history that um, Western powers drawing boundaries in that part of the world, whether it's after World War One or World War Two, um, has not resulted in a lasting peace. Um, so what is the role of the United States when this particular uh, fighting uh, draws to an end? I know America wants a two-state solution, but we can't, can't, I don't think, impose it. What's our role? What can we best do to assure future peace and stability in that part of the world? I think that's a great question, and that really cuts the heart of the matter, um, because the reality is that Netanyahu and his government are not interested in a two-state solution. They've been pursuing policies on the West Bank that will make a two-state solution harder and harder. They've been empowering settlers, um, encouraging or at least condoning violence by settlers against Palestinians in the West Bank. Um, it's a completely unacceptable situation. Now, the good news 
is that Netanyahu is extraordinarily unpopular in Israel. I mean, he's unpopular because of his corruption. He's unpopular because of his dictatorial tendencies and his judicial overhaul. He's unpopular because of his, he allowed Israel to be caught completely by surprise by this war. In fact, um, part of the reason there weren't more Israeli troops near Gaza in the first place when this happened is that they were guarding Israeli settlers, um, which hadn't even been there in the first place. Um, there used to be an argument in Israel that, yep, right. Yep. There used to be an argument, um, that the settlements enhanced Israel's security by creating sort of a little barrier between Israel and its enemies. But I think most people realize now that they don't. They actually hurt Israel's security. So Netanyahu has got to go. The good news is the Israeli public wants him to go. Um, it's very difficult to re- for any country to replace a leader during the war, any war, although many in Israel are calling for Netanyahu to step aside now. But his time, his time is going to come. It's going to be limited. Abu Mazen's time is going to come, as you pointed out. He's kind of ineffectual. Hard to know where he stands. Um, age is just, I, mean, I, I don't, I truly, I don't wish anyone to die, but age is just going to take care of that. He's, he's getting quite advanced in years. Um, so there's no partner there. What you really need um, is a triumvirate of leaders in the United States, in Israel, and among the Palestinians who have the courage and the wisdom to make peace. And that means the, the, the ability to be credible within their own populations and with the other populations. We had that with Carter, Sadat, and Begin. Um, but it's rare when that comes along. And when it does, we have to act. In the meantime, what the United States can do when this ends is be very clear about what we expect in the region. I mean, we are right. We can't, you can't make, if people aren't ready for peace, you can't force peace upon them. That's very true. But what we can do is encourage both sides not to take steps that will make peace more difficult in the future. That means encouraging Israel to stop building settlements, encouraging Israel to crack down on settlers engaging in illegal activities, encouraging the Palestinians to not engage in terrorism, having a zero tolerance for missiles fired across the border. There are things like that. And then it's a process of building trust on both sides, hope on both sides. It's not going to happen overnight. And yet, I'm going to contradict myself. Sometimes it can. I mean, I mean, you and I are both, even though we look remarkably young, you and I are both old enough to remember the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War. Who would have thought that just a few years later, Anwar Sadat, the man who attacked Israel, would come to Israel to make peace? And who would have thought that Menachem Begin, who was a terrorist in the 1940s, would have welcomed Sadat to make peace? And who would have thought that Jimmy Carter, would have the forbearance and the ability to bring those two together and hammer out an agreement at Camp David. I don't think in 1973 very many people would have predicted that, and yet it happened pretty shortly thereafter. So you never know. I mean, I mean, bad things happen out of the blue in this world, but I still believe that good things also happen out of the blue in this world, and we just have to be ready when the opportunity comes, and we have to make the opportunity come by the stuff I just outlined. Yeah, what, for whatever the cause, the world, I mean, we're seeing um, uh, both Islamophobia on the rise in the U.S. and anti-Semitism on the rise uh, in the U.S., well, well around the world. Um, I, I don't think there's patience for this kind of bloodshed. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I don't fully understand it, Steve, the, the slaughter that's going on in 
Ukraine continues to be bigger than this. I mean, half a million at least are dead in Ukraine. Um, but the world's attention just seems focused right now on, on Gaza. I mean, the, the, it's a slaughter going on in Sudan. Terrible slaughter. The world doesn't pay attention. But this part of the world, they focus on. And I don't think this level of bloodshed is going to be, it's going to cost Israel an enormous amount of support, um, uh, as we're, I think we're already seeing around the world. So that's the, the, the pressure for a two-state solution, I think, has never been higher. No, I think that's right. I think you know, part of it is the, you know, the people who don't, the rest of the world that you mentioned that's focused on Israel never really supported Israel in the first place. So Israel, it's really, there's one country that matters in this equation. It's the United States. Yes, and if the United States is with Israel, the rest of the world really isn't and really hasn't been. Um, the United States has often stood alone in its support of Israel. That's like goodness, you know, Joe Biden as president. Uh, in terms of the two-state solution, I mean, it, it takes two. I mean, Israel certainly can, absolutely must take steps to make a two-state solution possible, but it can't make a two-state solution unless the other side is willing to enter into a two-state solution as well. And the leadership just isn't there. But I think maybe after this war, I mean, if if we act, perhaps the steps can be taken to create a two-state solution, make it faster than anyone anticipates. It won't happen if Netanyahu is in charge, that's for sure. But Biden, and now we come back to the United States, the political rally in the United States is that this is really not a political winner for U.S. presidents to get involved in Middle East peace because it so often does not work out. You know, Biden is running for re-election. He's got to win this election. Most Americans, despite the news coverage, which is nonstop, the reality is poll after poll after poll shows that every time when Americans go to vote, unless American troops are in harm's way, they don't vote on foreign policy. They just don't. They vote on the economy. They vote on climate change. They vote on abortion. They vote on guns. I mean, those are the big issues, and those will remain the big issues in this election. So there's not much gain in doing that. It's taking up a lot of noise, but Americans just don't vote that way. So and I don't know if the two-state solution can be rushed or not. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it it's will require new governments. In, in to require new governments in Israel and new governments among the Palestinians. And I, I think it will require um, um, the Arab nations uh, to put more pressure on the militias that are there, certainly to stop funding them and to help disrupt Iranian money that's funding them, um, because these militias are are not really governments, but um, uh, Hezbollah certainly controls lots of Lebanon, just as Hamas is in charge in Gaza. Right. Well, the good news is, if there could be any good news about Hezbollah, is that they are not an impediment to a two-state solution because they're operating out of Lebanon, which is you know, which is a separate country. It's really mm-hmm. Hamas is, a, is the organization operating out of what would become part of a future Palestinian state. But you're right. I mean, people look to Israel, the Arab governments do fund, I and mean, it's mainly Iran, but other Arab governments could do a much, much more to come out of peace. They've got to worry about their streets, though. I mean, basically, Jews are not very popular in Arab countries. That's why there are now so few Jews in the Arab countries anymore. After Israel was created, 
hundreds of thousands of Jews left Arab countries to go to Israel to escape the conditions they were in. So it's not as if there's any love lost for Jews or for Israel in the Arab street or among the Arab leaders. But again, you know, for, just like the Abraham Accords worked, because the Abraham Accords were a combination of economic incentives and arms deals. I mean, there are ways to persuade everyone. And the United States needs to use, use what leverage it has to persuade the Arab governments to help create the conditions for a two-state solution as well. It does take a lot of people to do it, but I really believe that the United States, Israel, and the Palestinian Authority all want a two-state solution at the same time. We can make it happen. Yeah. Well, what can you say in this fraught and painful moment to um, Palestinian Americans who have been, after all, allies with uh, Jews on so many issues that have been part of the you know, Democratic coalition for years. And so many of these fights for social justice. And this fraught moment is um, uh, certainly being characterized in the press as fracturing that. And it is certainly filled with pain. W- what can you say to help uh, heal these wounds and bring people back together here in America? Well, I'm not sure we you know, I think it's really a, it will sound almost cliche, but sometimes cliches are true. It's a respect for each other's common humanity. The reality is Jews in the United States, Palestinians in the United States are not in Israel, the West Bank, or Gaza. We ought to be able to have disagreements, get along with each other, and still work together on the causes that unite us. I mean, I'm happy it works you know, as someone's a Palestinian-American and believes um, that the state of Israel doesn't exist I, or shouldn't exist. I will have some disagreements with them, but that's no reason we can't work together um, on abortion rights, on gun control, on climate change, on the economy, and all the things we care about. I mean, very often, you know, there's an expression, you know, um, by Robert and I do, politics makes strange bedfellows. And the whole point of that is um, you work together with people that you don't agree with. I mean, if you're going to acquire that to work with someone, you have to agree, agree with them on everything, you're not going to get very much done. Um, my view has always been work together with people where, when you work with them and don't. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, there are lines, obviously. You know, there's zero tolerance for anti-Semitism, zero tolerance for Islamophobia, zero tolerance for bigotry of any kind. Those are red lines. But aside from that, I mean, legitimate but and strong policy disagreements, that, that should be okay, I think. Yeah. And um, while we're on the topic of the U.S., there's sort of a strange phenomenon on college campuses um, where uh, anti-Semitism has been really shockingly on the rise and universities have found themselves um, tongue-tied in how to deal with it. And I... I um, I wonder if in the last few weeks uh, you've seen last week, really, if you've seen universities do a better job and how and what should the Jewish community do to um, uh, address what's going on in campuses? Well, it's an interesting you asked that yesterday, literally yesterday, the Jewish Electorate Institute, which is a nonpartisan organization that focuses on understanding the views of Jewish Americans, released a poll. And most of the poll you wouldn't find surprising. It shows overwhelming support 
for Biden over Trump in the 2024 matchup. Overwhelming support for Democrats. Um, overwhelming support for the way Biden is handling Hamas war. But they also asked about anti-Semitism on college campuses. And what's interesting is that for people aged um, 40 or actually 30, yeah, 40 or 35 or older, 80%, nearly 80% felt that anti-Semitism on college campuses was a very serious problem. For, for people aged 18 to 35, this was a poll of Jewish voters. That's why the cutoff was 18. For people aged 18 to 35, only 37% thought anti-Semitism on college campuses was a very serious problem. So it's interesting that the portion of the Jewish electorate that is younger and is either on college campuses or was most recently on college campuses is much less concerned about anti-Semitism on college campuses than the people who are older. And that leads me to believe that many people who are older are, you know, you see isolated incidents. It's like when a plane crashes. Does that mean every plane is crashing throughout the country? No, it means one plane crashed, and that's why it's on the news. There are f- over 4,000 colleges in America. Contrary to what, from the news media, you would think that there were four or five elite universities, and that's it. That's not true. Um, and I think it's been exaggerated. I also think that many of the kids who complain about it, there's no, now, to be clear, there absolutely have been real cases of serious anti-Semitism. Not disputing that. It's an ex- unacceptable. It has to stop. That has happened. But I think there are also instances where kids perceive as anti-Semitism what really is strong, offensive, or maybe even inaccurate criticism of Israel. And yes, that can make you very uncomfortable. I get that. It can make you feel like, what's going on here? I'm on a college campus where everyone hates Israel. Not anti-Semitic. It just isn't. I mean, college is a place where you're supposed to trade ideas. You're supposed to learn to live with uncomfortable ideas. Um, and I think kids need to learn that. Now, again, if any kid feels that they, and reasonably feels, not just in their imagination, anyone who feels physically threatened, certainly anyone who is physically threatened, anyone who can't go to class, anyone who is discriminated against because of their Jewish or their views on Israel by their professors, it's out of line. That's got to stop. And the extent it's happening, it is. But I'm not sure it's as bad as those of us who get our news from Twitter or hear anecdotes think it is. And I've thought that for a while, but this poll kind of confirms it. Um, It's a very striking difference in attitudes between young Jews and older Jews about anti-Semitism on campus. And I'm very helpful. You and I, do you remember the old saying, never trust anyone under, uh, never trust anyone over 30? Well, in this case, maybe we should trust, maybe we should trust the people under 35 and maybe just maybe they know more about what's going on college campuses than those of us who are older and more removed from it. Well, that is a very encouraging bit of news. And, Steve, we're going to have to leave it there. But as always, I really appreciate catching up with you and getting your insights into the um, uh, this very fraught part of the world, both on its implications for democracy and now on its implications for global peace. Well, thank you. It's always, always, always an honor to talk with you, to be with you, and to be on the show. I appreciate uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, we got about 30 seconds. Will you plug your newsletter for everybody? I would love to. 
Um, I send, as you mentioned at the top, um, I have a weekly newsletter. If anyone would like to subscribe, it's free. Just send an email to Steve, S-T-E-V-E, at steveshefe.com. S-T-E-V-E-S-H-E, two Fs like Fred, E-Y, dot com. Steve at steveshefe.com, and I'll be honored to include anyone who wants to be on my list in the list. All right, Steve. Thank you. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your weekend. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraft on WCPT 820. Well, you know him. He's an author, a political scientist, a political leader, a painter, um, and absolutely tireless. David Pepper is back with us. Hi, David. Hey, how you doing? I understand you're at a book fair. Uh, I don't know how you knew that, but I'm just leaving the book fair. But yeah, I had a, we had a nice event all day and, and sold some books and talked to a lot of people about politics, so it was good. Well, which of your books, um, which of your books was flying off the table today? You know, the, the saving democracy, a, a uh, little bit of both, but the saving democracy and laboratories of autocracy, nonfiction books that we've talked about so much were the the biggest ones. Uh, and it's, you know, honestly, I wrote these books to start people seeing just the problem in these states and the gerrymandering and what's so positive about things like this is some people came and said, I came here to buy your book. So to have people start to really see the problem more clearly than, you know, even when we first started talking a few years ago, it was just very encouraging that, that people are starting to see where the problem democracy really lies. Yeah, I think you, uh, sh- sh- you, what is, uh, what's the proper past tense here? You showed, you shown, your spotlight was on um, this problem before anybody else's, and in, and it caught fire because you're such a good writer. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, if, uh, you know, I don't, I don't care who gets the credit, but it's good that, that yeah. people are seeing it because the other thing is we weren't able to talk last week. I know it was out, but you're starting to see the election results too, like what happened in Ohio. Um, a couple weeks ago in Virginia and even other states and school board races that people are starting to really pay attention at levels that used to only be sort of federal races. They're now bringing energy to other levels of races, which is so important. So important. I mean, we, we haven't, you're right. We haven't talked since that fabulous win in Ohio. This time you had Governor DeWine cutting TV ads against the, constitutional amendment to codify abortion rights. You had your secretary of state, Frank Rose, you know, making partisan edits to the language of that appeared on the ballot describing the amendment. You had voter purges. You had you had a great wall of opposition. But you and the good people of Ohio crushed it. Yeah, it was an awesome feeling. I mean, I'm not glad that they did all those things, but the fact that it won by basically the percentage of people who are pro-choice in most polls anyway shows you the people are kind of figuring it out. They don't trust their government uh, at this point. They don't trust the rhetoric from some of the leaders. They saw through the manipulated ballot language, and you, we've talked about this. They literally took took words like fetus and turned it into unborn child to try and taint the language. They saw through it all. They showed up. Yeah. And even in Republican counties that voted for Trump two to one, they voted no in August against ruining our democracy, basically. And they voted yes in November 
reproductive freedom. So it was a it was a hell of a statement by the people of Ohio, not just for a woman's right to choose, which was obviously paramount, but but also for democracy itself that they saw through all those shenanigans and voted the way they did. Yeah, it was a great, great uh, not just day, but the whole several months of the last of that campaign and the August campaign were just amazing. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I talked about this a little last week, David. I don't have the words. And again, it's like it's like I need Walt Whitman for this to describe my awe of the American people who just, you know, they're not in a rush to figure it out, but they figure it out and when they do. They don't put up with it. Yeah, no, I think someone, someone said this at the hearing that I went to a few months ago when they gerrymandered once again. And I just hope she's right, and I love the way she put it. She stood up to the very people gerrymandered in Ohio as they gerrymandered again, which they did. And she looked at their face, and she said, you know what, you know what guys? Gerrymandering in your gerrymandering is lame duck. We see it. It may work for you, again, for a little longer, but we all see it, and we're all going to beat it. And I love that attitude. And she was a farmer from the county saying, we see it and it's not going to keep going on like this. And my hope is if we do this right, that the coalition, and it was more than one party that did this in Ohio. This would not have won if it was only Democrats. That the multiple multipartisan coalition that did this last week looks very similar to the one that will next November end gerrymandering here once and for all. Because uh, I think yeah. it's, you know, people rigging, politicians rigging districts for themselves. It's not something that only offends Democrats. It should offend anyone who wants accountable government. People don't like cheaters. They just don't right. like right. You know, like you're waiting in the, you're waiting to get off the expressway and there's a lot of traffic and you're on the right lane. And then somebody whizzes by 80 cars on the, right. you know, on the shoulder. And every single person who sees that happen goes, who is that? Right? Yeah, and that, exactly. that's what people think about this. Yeah. yeah, and that's what this is. I mean, and, and when you are when it starts to become, and this is why I think all those ads, the late ads by Mike DeWine, who who literally think about it, he got reelected in Ohio by twenty six points. Yep. So he, that's a that's a year ago. So a governor who got reelected by twenty six points gets on the TV late and tries to charm everyone to say, "Well, we we all need to come together," but this just goes too far, and he's he's. He's grabbing in every bit of the brand that reelected him by 26 to try and convince Ohioans to vote against their own interests and and their own view. Because, again, we're a 57 percent pro-choice state. And they basically said, sorry, Governor, we don't buy it anymore. We're done. And I think that was a real again, given how well he did the last election. That was a real rejection of, of, of a really it was honestly a very cynical use of a brand. You know, he he developed a good brand during COVID because he, to his credit, was responsible. Nothing mm-hmm. else he's done, frankly, has been all that good. And he, yeah. he pulled on that brand to try and convince people that somehow the people trying to protect freedom were going too far. When the answer is, no, Governor, your abortion ban, no exceptions for rape, incest, or health of mother. That's what's too far. That's what this will stop. In the end, that's that's how people saw it and didn't buy his, his uh, last-minute effort there. Well, I'm hoping that those three words you just uttered in the end are actually right. But it's Ohio and it's never the end. They, they, uh, talk about this effort 
this effort in the legislature now to say, oh, so what? It's a constitutional amendment, but nobody's going to be able to enforce it, so we don't have to pay attention to it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this is what they do. Put it this way. Think about it this way. If they're willing to subvert democracy throughout the election to stop the majority will, that mindset, of course, will try and do it after the election as well. It's not like it's any different. Um, and, and yeah. you know, the reason we have gerrymandered districts in Ohio right now is because this is what they did when we amended our Constitution and gerrymandering. They simply ignored it, and they violated court orders telling them they were ignoring it and violating it. So, yeah, their inclination will be, especially at the, at the behest of the, the right-wing groups that push them, how can we get around this? And my guess is there are multiple – they're thinking about it now. What are the different schemes they can come up with? Um, some really blatant, like the one that came out last week. So but to your question, dozens of them signed a, a statement right afterwards saying, we are going to do everything in our power to stop this. So they basically declared, they declared their intent to both violate the new law and the will of the people immediately. Uh, welcome to Ohio. But then a few days later, some of them said, actually, our plan is more specific. We are going to eliminate court jurisdiction over the new amendment. Um, you know, our, our usual separation of powers approach, which has been our country's history. And they said, rather than having Ohio courts review our laws to see if they violate reproductive freedom, which is now the Constitution, we are going to use our legislature to come to those conclusions, that we will review our own laws. You know, how's that sound, uh, America? That sounds like Russia or something. Well, um, what it sounds like is pre-Marbury versus Madison. Totally. Uh, yes. They are saying we will review our own laws, and we and these are written by people who literally will, you know, say that everything they've done is legal. Um, now, there are other people. I don't know where this will go because every, sometimes people will discount, oh, that's so crazy. That's so – I've seen the craziest things come forward. I mean, it's at some point six years ago, these six week abortion ban with no exceptions for rape or incest was the crazy law. No one thought anyone would do. Well, it became law. So but at the same time, they're doing that one. You also have, you know, the, the effort like Youngkin in Virginia, you have some of the leaders saying we'll do a 15 week ban. Well, that's also completely in violation of this new constitution. So my guess is they're going to all scheme it out um, and. We're going to see a multiple series of laws that take a bite in different ways, and they're going to see what sticks and what distracts. And ultimately, what they're gaming on, I'm afraid, is that, that they do have a Supreme Court of Ohio that is in the hands of four endorsed by right to, Ohio Right to Life justices. And I think that at the very least, what they're going to do is push laws that you and I would say, oh, that's totally in violation of the new Constitution but that they're hoping the Ohio Supreme Court will will not say that, too. So it's um, we have a long way to go. And, and what this is why I always say to everyone about whether it's Wisconsin or Ohio or wherever, don't be surprised anymore. Like, expect this and shape our fight expecting this, meaning run against all these people no matter what, so they don't feel like they can do crazy things and not even be run against. We are going to push for an amendment to end gerrymandering next November. The more they do that seems crazy in response to this, the more we can make the case to end gerrymandering. 
And we also in Ohio have three Supreme Court races up next November. We win all three. We win the court back. So, of course, fight all their efforts every way, you know, advocacy, the law, you name it. But staying on offense is the best way to circumvent even their sort of worst laid plans. So my hope yeah. is that people, people again, the, what, we, what we've done for recent years is we haven't learned how they are. And that means we're always surprised by, by it. And the lesson is, no, know that they're going to do something like that and be ready to fight it at multiple levels. And, and if you're on offense, you also may create some disincentives from them behaving as badly as they're, they're behaving. Well, this is a thing that I, I, I believe has happened since you and I first started to talk. Um, our side has gone from defense to offense. And when we did right. it, we've won three elections in a row. Correct. You know, gonna, I mean, I, I also think, and I wonder, I want to get your thoughts on this. I think the overreach of the autocratic party um, has created a bigger, co- broader coalition than I think has ever existed. And if you just start trying to name who they are, right, it's it's like people who care about women's reproductive freedom, people who care about labor, people who care about civil rights, people who care about economic fairness, people who care about climate change, people who care about gun laws, people who care about, you know, reading books, people who care about LGBT rights, right? People who are right. like bullies, people who used to be Republicans. Right? I mean, right. it's, it's, a, it's the biggest coalition I've ever seen. If we can hold it together, there's no stopping what we'll do. I, I agree. And the reason the other side cheats and gerrymanders and tries to change thresholds like they did in Ohio and constitutional amendments is because they know what you just said is true. They know, they fear, but they know that the majority is against them on all these issues, but they don't want to change their views on those issues. So they instead try to fight the rules and change the rules and rewrite amendment language to fool people. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think the coalition, and we saw this in Ohio again, you know, 57% 57% vote almost the exact same margin, the same way in, in August and November. And that is the combination of people that included a lot of, not just Democrats who are passionate about a number of the issues you mentioned, but yep. a lot of independents and a, and a good amount of Republicans to turn red counties basically blue. So, no, that it, it's a very big group. If we're smart enough to work as coalitions in that way, is how do you do that? How do you not let it revert to just two parties running for president and, and we yeah. break into our corners and all of a sudden that coalition splinters when it was so effective. And, you know, it happened in Virginia, too. I mean, that, that was you probably talk to people like I do. I thought we win in Ohio. I certainly never took it for granted. I was fighting till the end. People in Virginia did not think they were going to win that night. A lot of them. They, they really thought that Youngkin had gotten the best of them. I mean, I heard it. And the fact that Youngkin was so Yep. Yeah, like they just yep. people that, yeah, exactly. I heard we think maybe we'll win the Senate, but that house, it feels like we're like, I mean, so that was a shock. And again, just like Kansas was a shock, the extent of it and, and mm-hmm. you know, all, all the stuff last November. And I think, again, that speaks to a, co- a coalition of people, some voting because it just strikes them as not right. And others showing up in bigger numbers than they typically would in these in these years. And you know as well as I, these are the years where we're supposed to be losing everything because we have the White House. So we're overperforming in years. You know, I was a candidate in ten. I know what it feels like to be on the ballot in a state of yeah. the White. It's not fun. And 
So these are performances in years where history suggested we would do badly. Uh, yeah, so there's a heck of a history, coalition though. building. Yeah, I just think the history is irrelevant here because the country has two incumbents. Because for for the MAGA crowd, they have an incumbent. They did just not just yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah, no, that's it's true. Crazy. That's a good point. Absolutely, that's crazy. a good way to think about it. Um, so, so I got to ask you a couple other things. You, you, okay. um, I know, like no one has talked more about how people have to run everywhere and elections have to be competitive. And some of the problems right. when elections aren't ever competitive and how people never are held accountable when they don't have real elections. And then you went and looked at the new Speaker of the House. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love you to tell people that. Oh, my gosh. So, so yeah, I, I'm obsessed with the fact that we're letting all these extremists run with no accountability, with, you know, not only in gerrymandered districts, but it, with no op- opposition. And I keep saying this is creating an entire generation of politicians, and it is, who have never been in a real election. And it makes their behavior so warped versus how we expect public servants to be. And so the day he got picked, and I'd never heard of the person, which is already a bad sign. Uh, I'd never heard of him. And then someone said, I don't know who said, but they they made me think, well, let's look at his own career. And he turns out to be the perfect example of what I'm talking about. First run for the state house, unopposed. His first run. Normally, that's where you actually do have, you have to win a primary. He didn't even have to do that. Second run, state house, unopposed. I'm talking primary and general. Next run was Congress. I think his primary was unopposed. General election, clearly a gerrymandered district, wins by 35 points. And that's his career, the next two elections. And then his next election is unopposed. And now he's Speaker of the House. So we basically have a Speaker of the House who has never himself been in a real election. He's never faced anything but the pressure to be an extremist to avoid a primary. And so it's terrible but he's also almost the perfect representative of this lawless, unaccountable, and extreme generation that is basically they, – they have all the powers as if they have, have sort of emerged from democracy, but they've never been a democracy. And that's why you know I think it explains so much of extremism, the, the, the far partisan stuff, the lack of accountability, and the, the temptation to be lawless. And one other thing. The fear of democracy. And, and when you've been your whole life in power without an election, a lot of these people are afraid of elections because they actually think, probably rightfully so, well, I may not win one because my record is so indefensible with average people. So people like this guy, and he was a key part of the election denial stuff around January 6th, like, all they've known is gerrymandering. So they also use the powers to keep democracy at bay because they fear what would happen if they ever faced a real election. So He's right out of central casting of a whole generation, and, and it's ironic that in the end, but also fitting, and he a matter he managed to be the Speaker of the House of the United States of America without ever being in a real election himself. Like, you and I have been in more serious elections than this guy. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Absolutely. I'm stunned when I read it. Absolutely stunned. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Um, half the politicians in half the states of this country and in Congress, that's, it's the same story, and they kind of rock around like they've earned these jobs, but for the most part, they haven't done anything, at least with the people, to get there. It's all been yeah. prearranged or maybe one primary 10 years ago, and everything else, they basically go back over and over and over again. I, you know, I began my, my 
consciousness about politics began um, in Chicago when it was the Richard J. Daley Democratic machine where nobody really had to work hard to be elected in the same way either. And I mean, and it was appalling. And we put it in the rearview mirror and the country needs to do it. Too. Hey, speaking yeah. of, of thinking about how to do that, you have a new role um, with the Kettering Foundation, which yeah. is Ohio based. Talk about that too. Yeah, no, I was really excited. I actually, so you know, I'm a pretty a pretty outspoken Democrat, but I'm also a big believer that long term, we've got to make the fight for democracy more than just one party as best we can, even if it's hard. And the the reason Ohio was so successful the last four four or five months is because people beyond one party actually rolled up their sleeves. You know, the the former chief justice, a lifelong Republican, Mm -hmm. fought against these things. Um, John Kasich spoke out, at least in August. Um, Others did. And so this Kettering Foundation, although it's Ohio-based, it's really got a national footprint, internationally even, they pulled together – um, a group of us of across party lines uh, to all become people who speak out for democracy and think through both solutions, large and small. And so it was um, Christine Todd Whitman, uh, myself, um, James Comey, um, mm-hmm. uh, a, a number of Democrats, Maureen O'Connor, the chief justice I mentioned from Ohio, mm-hmm. Chris Matthews. And what I like about it is I, I love that that. In other foundations are getting this, but I love that a major foundation is basically putting a marker down saying we we want to be on the front line of fighting for democracy and we want to get a group of people together of some profile. Like, I feel like I'm the least profile of all these people, but I'm honored to be with them um, that are going to start speaking out together on this. And I do think that's really important. So I was honored to be asked. And, yeah, this week they announced it, and, and uh, we're going to do everything we can in the, in the coming months and beyond to, to really give some added profile, added flat platform about the, the crisis and solutions. And an example, in Ohio, Maureen O'Connor, the, the chief justice I mentioned, is leading the effort right now to replace politicians with citizens when it comes to drawing the districts of the state of Ohio. So we'll be yep. kind of pushing for major league reforms uh, wherever we can. To tr- and, and so that it's kind of just starting, but I'm really excited about it. So thanks for asking. Well, no, I, I'm, a, I, I'm a big fan of, of the Kettering Foundation, particularly they reinvented themselves in the last year entirely. Yeah, they really and, did. And in a really positive and, and impactful way. So I was really pleased with that announcement, and you deserve it. It's, you know, it shows yeah, that, no, they, I, that they, they're thinking it's a great group. Yeah, the leader of the group, the leader, um, really, Sharon Davis, her name, really uh, has impressed me. And I, I think this is an important move for others to take, too. Her decision, this is kind of insider baseball, but she decided as the new president of the foundation, hey, if we're going to protect democracy, it can't be sort of in an ivory tower. We've got to all, and this is true of, like, I think business, nonprofit, and others. We've got to start really getting under the practical side here. We've got to move. We can't just be writing papers that only a few of us read. And I think that was part of why she, why the foundation mm-hmm. is doing this. And I think, that's, I think that's a good challenge for a lot of others to think. You know, we all may be fretting about democracy, but there are actions we can take. You know, in, in engaging voters who have been left out of the system or removed from it by purging. Um, pushing for real reforms like gerrymandering reform or partisan ref- or, or primary reforms, 
um, running everywhere and infrastructure that encourages people to step up as public servants. There's a lot of action we could be taking. And I think the more we do that, the more we'll solve it versus, you know, kind of endless paperwork describing the problem, but not really getting into the fight. So that's the other part about that vision. I really respect it. I do too. I think it's great. And I I have one more, one more question for you. And it, um, you know, again, it's a topic you've talked about. It's front and center in, in, uh, your first the autocracy's book. Um, I know people think Democrats are from big cities and don't get small town America, but like you've explained pretty clearly why these GOP gerrymandered legislatures like in Ohio's are actually toxic for small towns. And now yeah. um, PBS kind of uh, picked up on that message this week and, and did a story about it and a story about a town you wrote about. So maybe you could talk about that, too. Yeah. So and this is a real this is a real it's a long term issue. And I think this is sort of, again, kind of a a beyond party. Small towns in a lot of states and I I can't speak for Illinois, but I can speak for Ohio and a lot of other states I visit. They are dying and they're getting they're they're getting very little help. Um, And it's hard because. The 21st century economy is a real challenge for these towns, just straight up, before we even get to, like, who's in charge of what. And, But they're being especially hurt lately in states like Ohio by the lack of democracy that comes from gerrymandering. And, and so what you've seen in states like Ohio for a decade and a half is almost every major state-level policy is not helping towns compete in a difficult 21st century economy already a hard proposition, it's actually undermining them. You know, we have in Ohio for more than a decade, how are they paying for tax cuts at the very high end? By cutting local government fund, which is the revenue share that used to keep a lot of these towns' basic services funded. That money is literally being raided. The small towns that are dying, their much bigger budgets 10 years ago, a big portion of their budget is now being spent by the state to give tax cuts to rich Ohioans who do not live in those towns. Um, they've been giving away school money. The, the center of these communities in many cases, and this will be true all across America, a public school in almost every small town is the beating heart of that community. It's good jobs. It's where the kids learn everything. It's where the sports they cheer for are. It's where the arts are. And they're pulling money away from these schools, A, to cut taxes, and B, often these new voucher everywhere schemes some people and enriching private schools at the expense of these public schools. And then you have things like deregulation as well. The, the railroad that, that crashed in East Palestine, that, that's partly you know, a lack of regulation from Ohio for years because the big private players run these state houses and the public has no choice because they're gerrymandered. So, yeah, what you see overall is that a, a, a real pattern of a downward spiral and I think that Trump did take advantage of that when he ran in 16. And I think Democrats need to get a lot like more sort of out there by running everywhere, but also identifying for people these towns. Listen, I know the Republicans have made you think that in small town Ohio, somehow the, the, the lack of a wall on the Mexico border is your problem. The problem is your state house 80 miles away. It's not a CRT class in some law school far away. It's the fact they've been raiding your schools for 10 years, 
to give it away to a for-profit scam that their donor benefited from and gave them money from. And, and I think there's actually a really long-term way to pinpoint the problem. But, but if you're not out there making the case, then they've been very successful about pointing to all sorts of causes that actually have much less of anything to do with these towns' demise than what the very state policies are. So I think it's a real problem. It's a very frustrating problem because, you know, my wife's from one of these small towns. I'm not. I'm from Cincinnati. I'm there all the time. It's it's horrible. Like, the state of these places makes you live it if you walk down the street. It's just wrong. And I think that the sad irony is the Democratic plans on infrastructure and the CHIPS Act and education, actually, and health care are the very things these places need. And if we in the very policies that trickle down are what's hurting them. And if we actually tried harder and explained better, we'd do a lot better in these places. We may not win them, but we'd get closer to where Obama got, like 60-40 as opposed to 80-20. Uh, and so I think there's a challenge. There's a policy challenge. I think our answers are better. We can be, even be more aggressive. And if we campaign right, I actually think we can make progress. Yeah, we have to be able to recruit candidates from these communities. Yeah. And it's Absolutely. hard to do when you say to them you're not going to win the first time. But, yeah, we need to show them, listen, you're running as public service. You're yep. giving choice where it hasn't been. You're holding extremists accountable. You could win, but even if you don't, your performance was incredible. And by the way, I've seen people all the time, even if they don't win for that, they find themselves on the school board the next year. There was a woman I know who ran for a tough state house seat in a district that probably she was told was unwinnable. She didn't win. She won a city council seat two weeks ago because right. the notoriety of that race got her elected. So yeah. there's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of benefit to running, even if you don't win. We have to do a better job of making that clear to people. Yeah. Well, David, I've taken a lot of your time. I know you're on the run. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. You've earned it. <laughs> you too. Hey, thanks so much. I really your your amplification and, and others really makes a difference. So thanks, and look forward to keeping talking. You bet. All right. Take care. Okay. Take care. See ya. Bye bye. All right, we're going to take a brief break, and then uh, you know what's next. I'm taking your calls at 773-763-9278. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. All right, Jim, what's on your mind? Hi, Edwin. I can picture the Speaker of the House with a French uh, uh, hat on and a megaphone, a megaphone borrowed from Rooney Valley and edit those 4,000 hours in a January 6th riot. Because I think he's David Lean. I, I think he's, you know, he, he thinks he's David Lean. But obviously, it's going to be fun to watch because how they're going to sanitize Trump's role in January 6th should be very interesting. But I don't know when they're going to release that uh, bomb, but uh, he's talking about it. He's going to no, edit it gonna, the, It'll all be out available for the public, they say, all of it. They'll reveal uh, things that uh, the Capitol Police don't want people to know where their cameras or they don't want people to see you know, particular you know, uh, security doors. But all of it's going to be made available because why not? Let's show people having a picnic and enjoying their capital on that day as if there were right. no in, riot. And in the, in the, ne- the next attack might be even the <laughs> worse. It could be worse than that. 
But it, it just how they're going to try to make this guy look like uh, something like a human being is is beyond me. Uh, yeah, well, take care. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Uh, it, it, I hope you all know what he's talking about. Jim was talking about, but uh, the House is going to release. They say they're going to release all of the video that was taken thousands and thousands and thousands of hours from multiple cameras from that terrible day. Uh, Steve, what's up? What's on your mind? Uh, yes, and I thought the conversation you had w- was very interesting. Yeah, it, it's, it demonstrates an interesting dynamic in that you, you've seen a lot of states, many of them red states, you know, reaffirming a woman's right to choose, which is very comforting for many of us. Uh, on the other hand, for a lot of Democratic strategists, they were somewhat concerned in that, you know, they thought that it possibly can take the issue off the table in many of these states because a lot of moderate voters or perhaps pro-choice Republicans feel, okay, it's been secured now, and therefore we are, we're sort of released to vote for whatever crazy person in the next presidential cycle. Uh, but uh, th- these people just can't, and by these people, I mean Republicans, can't seem to take the temperature of the electorate. I mean, how many of these messages need to be sent to you before you realize that it's a bad idea to suggest these things as in terms of national public policy? Because th- you've, you've just taken it off the table, and your voters can now vote how, how they choose, only to come back and say, oh, no, we're, that, that vote's not going to count. We're going to uh, continue to legislate the way we, we want to, and we plan for a national law that prohibits a woman's right to choose that would circumvent state law. So, I mean, they just are intent on suicide. I, I, I don't know if they just don't understand the electorate. They're ignoring these people. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's befuddling, quite frankly. Well, two things. First, um, I would give up the political advantage of having an abortion ban any second of any day to save the lives of the women that, that are put in jeopardy by these bans. You know, um, so I know there are some strategists who talk about this only as a political issue. It's life and death for people. I'm thrilled every time we take it off the table by winning. That's just me. Um, but on your question of why they keep doing it, they keep doing it because they've rigged the system. They've gerrymandered so terribly that 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 they can't um, that the only thing that they worry about is a challenge from the right, from further right. They've so empowered in their yeah. map making this virulent, um, uh, strain, you know, minority view, but dangerous in our country that doesn't like democracy, that doesn't like freedoms, um, at least not freedoms that other people have. Um, and, um, and, and they, and they draw their maps to give them outsized power and they're afraid of them. So that's, so that's why they can't and, help. And, and, and that's, and that's an excellent point. And, and I think context matters here. You know, in, in 2012, when, when Obama soundly refi- defeated Mitt Romney, and of course, there were a lot of losses in the, in the House and Senate for Republicans. And, and that night, you know, there were a lot of uh, leading Republicans who were shaking their heads, asking themselves, you know, is this the end of our party? Do we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves? Because you know, they, they were suffering from the hangover that was 2008 and the failure of trickle-down economics and deregulation and so forth. And then we fast forward to 2016. I, you, know, you, you cannot run on that any longer because you almost destroyed these people's lives. You, you did destroy a lot of people's lives just eight years prior to this. But what can win? Crazy populism that vilifies people of color, immigrants, women, 
And it also vilified a lot of people at the top who were the so-called elites that, you know, the neocons used to embrace. So Donald Trump didn't win by embracing those people. You know, he, he, he too attempted to vilify them, but he was exploited by the, those same individuals. Uh, Steve, I've lost you for a minute. Are you still there? Maybe you've lost me. Hello? Yep. This is Paul. This is not Steve. I think we lost Steve. Oh, I guess I lost Steve in the middle of that. Well, Paul, uh, welcome. I, 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 yeah, it happens. I Live radio, as you know. Sometimes sometimes somebody just drops off. That, yeah, sometimes it's... Well, I just, let me um, just finish one second. Hang on one sec, Paul. Just wait with me for one second. Steve was saying that after Mitt Romney's loss, Republicans said, is this the end of our party? And um, they asked that question. And you know what? They were they were right to ask it because it was the end of their party. The, that Republican Party died um, and its shell got taken over by something very um, unlike the Republican Party ever since Abraham Lincoln, one that just doesn't believe in democracy, doesn't believe um, that any inherent rights belong to the people, but are rather for their party to decide who should have them and who should not. Um, so they were right. The Republican Party died that night. Okay. And, and, uh, and Paul. And they <laughs> lost to a black man. And the, the, uh, twice the, the slap back. Yeah. Look, first of all, I, I think actually, um, John McCain lost worse, but, Barack Obama, as he said, I know something about winning. And uh, he he soundly defeated both candidates. And so, yeah, they lost their party. And uh, your point about rights is something I will talk about tomorrow uh, evening on Kitchen Table Progressive. What are your rights? What does the Constitution say about your rights? What rights do you really have? And whence they come, that being where do you get them? They're not from God. I'm sorry to say that notion is not, that is a misnomer. Um, but to Jim's point also, yes, there will be another attack. It will be on January 6th. This time, the last one was a dress rehearsal. And regardless of whatever happens uh, with the Donald Trump trials, they know what their mistakes were. This is going forward. Just be ready. Just be ready because this is where we are. And, but to, to, pick up on gerrymandering and David Peppers. I, I read his, his, uh, uh, letter today or his, uh, I saw what he was talking about today. Um, his point about how gerrymandering is killing small towns. Absolutely true. For example, um, and I'm fam very familiar with Michigan politics. My mom still lives in Livingston County, Michigan, a horrid place. Uh, but look at the the um, I don't know if the if the battery plant, the negotiation battery plant will actually come forward. But the people there, the state, the local representatives, the Republicans don't want it. They have been lobbying against it and say we have plenty of jobs. Well, the average uh, pay in a job at that plant was going to be twenty four dollars an hour. And they're saying there are they, they're saying that there are help wanted signs on every corner, but not for twenty four dollars an hour. The 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 uh, rural areas in these states, they don't want economic growth. They don't want it. And the reason is because just like the reason they want to kill this negotiation plan is because economic growth comes with people of color. And they 
don't want it. They would rather live in the Stone Age. And in terms of gerrymandering, is helping that happen. And in terms of gerrymandering, it is killing the vote. I was looking at Matt Gates' district. Matt Gates won his, his the last election. He, he smeared the Democrat. Yeah, it was, uh, I think, 190,000 votes uh, for him, 60,000 for the Democrats. So that's better than three to one. But look, that only adds up to 250,000. A federal congressional district is 752,000. Not, not all of those people are eligible to vote, but that, what that shows me is it was a poor turnout in Matt Gates' own district because, number one, the Democrats don't show up because they know they're going to lose. It's so heavily gerrymandered. And secondly, neither do the Republicans because they know it's a ringer. They don't even, their own constituents don't even vote. And so, as David Pepper has always said, they don't have to produce. They don't have to produce a damn thing. And they, they just yank power from the American people. And the rights that what I'm talking about is uh, when you look at, it may be even your right to vote. Because remember what Article 2, Section 1, Paragraph 2 starts is, the, each state shall submit as the legislature thereof shall determine a number of electors. That doesn't mean the only, you only get to vote for president because the legislatures since 1880 have all agreed that it could be a popular vote. I don't think that the Republican states, the red states are necessarily going to keep that. They can determine how to send electors to their state capitals in any which way they want to. And we've talked about the electoral college. It used to be the form the reason was that so small states would have uh, would, wouldn't be discounted out of the picture. But look what's happened. Elections are just come down to, what, six swing states, and they're not small states. Right. Well, so changing states. it required. The biggest problem in the Constitution is Article 5, and that's one that gets at how you actually amend the Constitution. Because until we yeah. fix that, we can't really make the amendments that are needed to fix the Electoral College or anything else. Um, yeah, and Article numbers. 5 it's, says, even if you follow our procedures, you can amend the Constitution to do anything except every state gets two senators, no matter how small. That's, true. that's <laughs> absolutely right. The Senate can never be abolished. Or, or cha- not way? even abolished. You can't change. The, no, you can't change the the, the amount of uh, of legislate of, of senators to reflect population. Right. Each state right. gets the same number, no matter what. Yeah, that's right. No um, so what, I think Article five, Article five needs some some work. But um, well, look, yeah. let's talk about something more fun for just a second, because <laughs> uh, it's just us and we can do this. Um, okay. I, I just I, I'm excited about this since um, uh, uh, October to October this year to last year, the price of gasoline has gone down more than five percent. Used cars and trucks, seven percent. Cars and rental and truck rentals, nine and a half percent. Airline fares, 13 percent. Televisions, nine and a half percent. Toys in time for Christmas, down four percent. Right. I mean, so so what didn't go down since it was flat? Well, things like like you're going to love this one, particularly Paul. the price of diapers went up six points. Like that's that's hard. That's inflation. Except, why did the price of diapers go up? Because the company that makes Huggies reported that the cost to make diapers fell by $75 million 
They just uh, upped the price because they didn't get away with it. And the company reported 168 million in operating profits. So like, what's like, what's this inflation problem? This inflation problem now, since we fixed the the supply chain bottlenecks is a lack of actual competition so that, you know, um, uh, consumers can say, yeah, I'm not paying for that expensive one. I'm going to pay for the less yep. one. The companies are getting away with it because, wow, those numbers on inflation are great. That, well, not only that, inflation, the third quarter, third quarter economic growth was 4.9%. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I expect some adjustments because that's that's so stunning, so fright. I mean, you know, we there was a time when people said, "Oh, well, China's going to pass us." They ain't going to. There's no way to. I mean, the biggest economy in the world growing by almost five percent. Um, that's crazy. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. Take the adjustments for what they are. Um, yes, there, there may be, but, but it's still so, amazing. Is, is that is. is even so, and Justin, take take point nine away. So it's four um, percent. Whatever yeah, happened to the uh, whatever happened to the um, uh, you know, to, to to the recession that we were all hearing? Oh, there's going to be a recession. The Biden economy just can't last. There's going to be a recession. And by the way, if if the four point nine percent holds, uh, everyone, here's what's going to happen. Remember the the definition of. Um, you know, of a, a, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. And yeah. this, so in other words, you could have 4.9% one quarter, unprecedented, not unprecedented, but stellar. And then the next quarter, 4.5%, still great. And then the next quarter, 4.1%, oh, we're in a recession, right? Because look, it's all of those are great numbers, but they're declining. But that doesn't mean that the economy is in the tank and neither did, by the way, inflation because inflation by the way is a is a naturally occurring phenomena of a free market economy because it is price equals demand divided by supply in other words it's dollars is the demand and the supply is what we can what the demand can can get and so the demand has to come first there's no growing economy a growing economy has to start with inflation because Nobody produces goods. We don't produce supply where there's no demand. That's silly. No, no company does that's that. The demand economy does by accident, and why that's such a problem. <laughs> um, that's why I'm a. That's why I'm a, a, a capitalist. I believe in market economies. I think they're very useful. But like the price yeah. of eggs is down twenty two percent. Butter is down four percent. Apples are down. <laughs> Lettuce is down. Fuel is down. Smartphones. And I'm just looking at this list. It's cr- health insurance weighed at thirty four percent because of, and that's part. That's because of laws they passed. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. I mean, Biden should be up by seventy percent in the polls, and the other guy wants to yep. put everybody in concentration camps. Absolutely okay. nuts. I got to take another call before we go, Paul. But thank you. And by the way, everybody, tune in to Paul tomorrow. Okay. Kitchen Table Progressives tomorrow afternoon right here. Hello, Edwin. How are you? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I was just reading the thing out there. You know, where the world's attention is on Gaza now. And the Ukrainians, remember that war? <laughs> That's so back burner now. 
worried world it's very is going to hurt their cause. And, uh, I'm worried about Ukraine. Yeah, and, and we should well, worry about Sudan, yeah, you too. You don't hear about it or you see reporters there anymore, even. But, um, well, we, they had, when that's first started out, they had, they had gotten all kinds of online fundraising efforts and stuff kept pouring in from around the globe to help purchase essential equipment for Ukrainian armed forces. And then as fighting with Russia wore on, <clears throat> war fatigue set in a bit. The donations slowed up a bit, but money continued to come in steadily. But then the Israel-Hamas war broke out, and all of a sudden, nothing else. It's a trickle, you know? Well, Joe Biden has asked for money for Ukraine, and Congress has not said yes. This Republican Congress didn't even want to vote on it. Um, look, the, the, what the fight in Ukraine is essential for all of us. Um, a world that, do, that where, where borders don't mean anything, where a strong neighbor can eat a smaller neighbor, is the world we lived in. By the way, we have pretty big weapons. Is the world we lived in a hundred years ago, and we ended up with two world wars and you know 135 million human beings slaughtered. Right. The the, the yeah. order we put in after that war has has led to unprecedented freedom and prosperity around the globe. Things aren't great, but oh my gosh, they're so much greater than they were before. And and if anybody just w- wants to argue that, we can argue. I'll argue it every day. Things are better than they were. And yet, yeah. And what, we, and yep. that, on another a couple of weeks ago, was uh, we've been you know we're giving the arms to both Ukraine and and uh, Israel. And yep, I was reading where the stock of you know they're taking from our armaments yet you know their stockpile. And I've read where the stockpile of the 155 millimeters, you know, they, they don't have enough people working at the places building them, you know, that they got these guys working like double shifts and stuff like that to try to keep up, you know, so that that's a concern. Well, I, I am a little uh, suspicious of, of, of that talk from our defense contractors. I am sure that, you know, they're, they're as well connected as anybody in the planet and not always completely honest about their supply chain problems. Um, I, they, I'm not worried that they won't replace our stockpiles and won't do it. If it yeah. you know, um, I know anyway, about David, a year I, ago after that, that war started, though, we were down a quarter. It's I know, and we've been, with all that money that we, we spend on it is to replenish our stockpiles so that we get the new yeah. weapons. That's what that is. Anyway, th- Dave, yeah. thank you for calling. Well, listen, have a happy uh, Thanksgiving, Ed. Yep, you bet. All right, and, and to all of you, I won't be here next week, um, Thanksgiving weekend. I, I wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. I'm grateful to Paul, who runs the boards, to Julia, who uh, – uh, helps me wrangle all the guests, my producer, to all of you for your patriotism, for your thoughtfulness, and your determination to keep our democracy and the rights that generations of Americans have fought and died for alive. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>